KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM. My name is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit. We'll be back in just a few minutes.
there you have it, Chris Coza. And this is Mike Hagen. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. Yeah, a song by Chris Coza. That one's called Chicago Avenue. We'll hear a little bit more from Chris throughout the program tonight. And we're going to get things going right off the bat here. Say a quick thank you to Debbie. Debbie Johnson, as always, Free Range Radio Theater. Great stuff. Every week at 10 p.m., one hour before this program, doing radio theater like it's never been done before. Kelvin and Jason doing it up before that. Jazz plus blues equals nobody knows. Tech Radio, great as always tonight, helping us out with our gadgetry and how to manage this landscape of technology that's changing so quickly in front of us. Jeff Wheeler getting things going with Uncommon Light every Monday, 3 to 5 p.m. And uh, great radio on KOPN. Glad to be a part of it. All right, thanks uh, to everybody out there who participated last week in the program. Fun show. Got to listen to some vintage Terrence McKenna and talk it up a little bit with all of you. Terrence as profound and relevant as ever, even from beyond the grave. Lots of people, uh, a lot of people asking an email for more, more from Terrence. We'll definitely do that in the future. But there's also a lot about Terrence McKenna on the web. Just seek and you shall find, if you know what I mean. All right, uh, music last week, also Journey Through the Spheres, a tribute and a benefit CD for Terrence McKenna. Congratulations to Lynn out there, out in uh, somewhere in the United Kingdom. Uh, he won himself a copy of that disc, and I'll send it out to you real soon. As always, um, thanks to everybody who's out there making great music and sharing it with us. Okay, If you miss the show, it's on the web, www.mikehagan.com. Just snoop on over to the archives, either the music archives or the program archives, and you can... Get what you need, all right? Okay, tonight, again, a little different plan than normal. Uh, rather than wait till the midnight hour, we're going to start the show right off with our guest. His name is Father Thomas Doyle. As I said, we'll also be mixing in some music from a new singer-songwriter that I met a few weeks ago. His name is uh, Chris Coza. He's from Minneapolis, and he was down here in Columbia a few weeks ago. And a uh, super talented young guy, and we started the show, I should say, off with a with a track called Chicago Avenue, and it's from a disc entitled Exit Pesky. We'll also hear a few more from a new CD that he just released called Patterns, okay? All right, more from Chris Coase as the show moves, uh, moves along, but right now we're going to jump right in and welcome our very special guest. His name is Father Thomas Doyle. He was born in the state of Wisconsin about 62 years ago, and he has been a Catholic priest, a Dominican for some 40 years now. He has a very interesting story. He's been close with people in the Vatican, was an advisor to John Paul II, and uh, he's been involved with the issue of sexual abuse of children in the Catholic Church since about 1984 or 1985. And we're going to talk to Father Thomas Doyle about all of this and uh, let him tell us his story, and we're going to start right now. So, Father Doyle, thank you so much for being on the program. Welcome. Thank you. Well, uh, you know, I've been reading quite a bit about you and the uh, experiences you've had over the last 20 years, primarily, I guess, and so I think that the story sort of comes out in your own story. So I'd like to maybe start off with just you, and if you could tell the audience a little bit about yourself and where you come from and how you got interested in, uh, or how you got involved, I guess I should say, uh, not just in the the problems of the church, but with the church uh, in general. Well, as you said, I was uh, born in Wisconsin, and 
my family moved around, well, not a great deal, but we moved from there to upstate New York when I was a kid. Um, I entered the Dominican Order in 1964 and was ordained a priest in 1970. A few years after my ordination, I was uh, sent away for doctoral studies and in canon law, and the purpose, the reason behind that was I had, as a parish priest, which was my first assignment, gotten interested in working with people who were divorced and sought to get remarried in the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. And I, I was interested in them because they, at the time, I, I vividly remember, they they seemed to have been forgotten. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they were divorced, and at that time, if you were divorced in the Catholic Church, that was about the... You know, the sin that couldn't be forgiven and the wound that wouldn't heal. Right, right, right. So I met some of these people, and they were wonderful people. And got involved in that and started working in the Archdiocese of Chicago. Uh, a couple of years after my doctoral studies finished, um, several years after, I was selected to go and work at the Vatican Embassy in Washington, D.C. Um, while I was there, I... Uh, had a couple of interesting jobs, I guess you might call it that. One was I uh, i didn't select bishops, but I, I managed, I guess, or supervised, managed would be a better word, the process whereby candidates for a bishop in the United States were, were chosen. Were, well, chosen, were actually investigated. Hmm. Vetted, and then they were chosen by the Pope. Mm-hmm. But we would, uh, or basically by the Vatican office that handles bishops who sent their recommendations to the Pope, who just sort of blessed them. Mm-hmm. I did that, and among other things, while I was in that job in the Vatican Embassy, a couple <coughs> of uh, cases of sexual abuse by clerics were, were referred to the Vatican ambassador, uh, the Archbishop, not that he had to make any major decisions. It was a informational sharing. And uh, one of them uh, was sent in the fall, October of 1984. And I was tasked simply with following the correspondence and the documentation. Mm-hmm. Nothing more. Keep okay. a file, prepare letters for the Archbishop's signature. And in the course of this, I uh, got involved somewhat with the diocese where the priest came from only by way of suggesting to them uh, things that they might do, places to send them for treatment and evaluation and so mm-hmm. Father Doyle, can I ask you a question? Sure. Uh, you, you mentioned up front that you were ordained in the Dominican order. Yeah. And, and I've heard this, I'm sure many listeners have heard, you know, that this order or the Franciscan order or the Dominican order or that. Could you tell us a little bit about that particular side of it? In other words, how is that uh, described? Well, a religious order is a, a, uh, an official group of either men or women uh, who uh, are, feel called to live a special kind of life within the ambit of the church's structures. Mm-hmm. And uh, in my case, I joined the Dominicans, which was named after St. Dominic, who founded the order in the 13th century. Uh, and it's existed since then. And the order's goals or its aim, mission, is uh, basically intellectual, providing uh, research, writing, teaching. Uh, they do everything now, parishes, college teaching, university work, and so on. 
uh, I was drawn to the order uh, because I was impressed with some of the priests that I'd met as being very down-to-earth normal human beings, not exalted or otherworldly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, I was impressed when I got in the order uh, with the, uh, uh, the quality of life, the intellectual inquisitiveness, I'd say, and the, uh, the incredible variety of people. Mm-hmm. So that's what a religious order is. There are you know, hundreds of them in the Catholic Church, the Jesuits, the Franciscans, the Benedictines, the Dominicans, mm-hmm. the Carmelites, and so mm-hmm. Some have specific purposes. Some have a variety of missions that they do. And they're marked by community life, uh, living together, working in a special mission, and the, the mobility. In other words, you, you're not stuck in one diocese. You can go throughout the world. Ah, okay. uh, yeah, okay. So it's a brotherhood of sorts. Yeah, it is a brotherhood. Or a sisterhood. Or a sisterhood. Yeah. Very strong on the concept of fraternity uh-huh. or uh-huh. or um, female, I don't know, sorority, I'd say isn't the proper word, but... Uh, uh-huh. You know, living together, developing uh, a bonding with the with each other, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the networking is great. Yeah, because that, that gives you an opportunity to move around the planet, sure, and and because because the orders have uh, uh, established places around in certain parts of the planet. Certainly. Well, they're all over the place. Mm-hmm. My particular outfit is all over the world, um, and and many of them are. The we have a number of women Dominicans who do incredibly good work, have done and continue to do. Many of them are are out in the forefront, really. I mean, they're, they're really preparing for what the church in the future is going to be like, um, which hopefully will be one devoid of a lot of the barriers between men and women and you know, different classes of people. Well, let me let me continue with this a little bit. I, before we talk too much about the, the scandals and the and, and the, the troubles that, that you've been trying to address, I'd like to talk a little bit about hierarchy. Sure. I'm not sure people are, uh, myself included, you know, recognize the sophistication of the hierarchy within the church. And I and I'm sort of curious now within the you know within your own order. I, I imagine there's a hierarchy within the order that then uh, somehow is is uh, represented within the, the, the larger order? Well, yes and no. Uh, the, the, the governmental system of the Roman Catholic Church is known as a hierarchical governmental system. That means that it's the power, the authority, is in the hands of or rests in persons who are in specific offices, not in groups. The only real group that has any power in the Catholic Church is the College of Cardinals when they vote on a bishop on a pope. Hmm. But all the other groups are basically, to greater or lesser degree, uh, consultative. So the hierarchy simply means that the power is held by hierarchs, which comes from a Greek word which means holy men or holy people, religious leaders. And in essence, it's hierarchical by structure, and it is monarchical by practice. And, and, and the fact of the matter is that power rests in, in specific men, the pope, the bishops, and it's not shared with others. Mm-hmm. And in, in, uh, the power in the case of the Pope is absolute. Uh, I mean, he, he answers to no no one. And, you know, ecumenical councils like the Second Vatican Council mm-hmm. had to be signed off by the Pope, all the decrees, or they were worthless. Mm-hmm. Now, in the Dominican order, as is the case with probably a few other orders, we are not, the Dominicans are not a hierarchical organization. It is a democratic organization. 
Hmm. Okay. They have we have uh, superiors. The head of it is called the master of the order, and the head of each region is called the provincial superior, and the head of each individual community is usually called a prior or a superior. These men are all elected mm-hmm. by their peers okay. for a specific number of years. And we've got a neat saying in the order. It goes something like this. Be nice to the guys on the way up because you're going to meet them on the way down. <laughs> yeah, that's what it goes uh, for a lot of different... Uh... Yeah. And we have, uh, you know, no one individual office holder has absolute power. He's answerable to a council mm-hmm. uh, to a, to a, that has a certain amount of deliberative power. And it really works quite well because what you don't find in, in my order and in, in several others is a stratification in the society as you do in the in the hierarchical in the basic Catholic Church. The stratification being there's the clerics, that's the priests, the bishops, and so on, mm-hmm. and the lay people. Mm-hmm. No matter how much theological um, uh, verbiage you can concoct, there is a definite difference between the two, and mm-hmm. it is a stratified society, mm-hmm. and the clerics and especially the bishops, are more important than the lay people. And they are considered more important. They certainly have all the power uh, and in many ways are considered different and even better. All of this, of course, is, I think, quite alien to the concept of a true Christian community, but that's what we've got. You know, it's interesting that you say that because I was uh, brought up Catholic. I went to a Catholic uh, schools through high school and was pretty... Uh, uh, serious about my church going too up until um, well I don't know 16 or 17 years old I was an altar boy the whole bit and I had the opportunity to go to the Vatican when I was 19 my my first year in college I had an opportunity to go to Europe and we went to Rome you know and I was naive but I learned that what you say is true because I've always been someone who's interested in old things, historical artifacts, and I love manuscripts and and this sort of thing. And I made an attempt to go to the Vatican Library. Did you get in? No. Of course not. <laughs> no. And I was absolutely confounded by it and really upset me. And in fact, that was eventually what basically was the first step in me leaving the church, quite frankly. Interesting. Uh, but at, at, at any rate, uh, please continue. The Vatican, the, you know, the whole the whole ecclesiastical system is, in, in many ways, it's anachronistic in today's world. What do you mean by that? Well, in, you know, in most of the countries in, in the in the world today are democratic by in their governmental system in one way or another. Some much less so than others, and yet you have the Roman Catholic Church, which can, persists in maintaining a hierarchical, monarchical system of government. You know, you, you keep mentioning system of government, and it reminds me of, you know, as if we're talking to the United States Congress or something. Are people, both lay people and clergy people, who are members of the Catholic Church, are they considered citizens of some sort? And do they have any particular responsibility to the Church versus, for example, to a, to a country or something? Well... They're not really citizens, they're members. The church, the Catholic Church is, has different levels of reality. 
the most obvious one is the the external structures that people see the buildings the 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 uh the governmental structure and i, I use the word governmental structure because it simply means that that's the way it's run it's the mm. government and it happens to be uh, a particular style namely hierarchical slash monarchical well i guess my question though is like if there was an idea that was being put out by a government like say our government had a position on something and then the and then the papacy or the church had a had another position that was the opposite would would the would the people be required by the faith to follow one or the other or well, or, or are they separate i mean is church and state really separate in the eyes of the church i guess is my well question. i think that the the traditionalists, there are some who would say that the, you know the most perfect state of, is one that, that that's a theocracy, God. and you know that's a nightmare. Mm. You know because you know religion is something that's conjured up by human beings. Spirituality is your connection with a higher power. I agree but fully. Religion is something conjured up by human beings, and I, a very dear friend of mine has a saying that I'd like to share with you. Please. He quotes somebody else, and I can't remember who that somebody else is. Some famous philosopher goes like this, good men tend to do good deeds, and evil men tend to do evil deeds, and for good men to do evil deeds, it takes religion, and Whoa. if you think about it for a few moments, you know, organized religion, especially Christianity, is capable of some of the most exalted, altruistic good deeds that you can think of, I mean, unselfishness, uh, and there are, you know, countless examples in the contemporary world and through our history of of people motivated by their Christian faith to do good deeds for others. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you can find some of the most evil, the, the Inquisition, which was gosh. unspeakably evil, the Crusades, which were unspeakably evil, mm -hmm. and the nightmare we're going through now, the, the sexual abuse of children and vulnerable adults uh, by the clergy is... is absolute nightmare. It's, mm -hmm. it's a horror. Uh, and we're living in the midst of it and unfortunately you know, there are significant numbers of people that would just like to look the other way because it's just too painful mm -hmm. and they're in too deep denial to even admit that the church that they have been taught demands their loyalty and gives them their emotional and spiritual security is capable of not only producing dysfunctional clerics who have done you know the most base disgusting things to the most vulnerable but also the leadership that has hidden it lied about it enabled it fostered it uh, and in many ways to the in the opinion of many encouraged it to happen hmm. uh, rightly or wrongly that that's basically what what we've got yeah and uh there's sort of the impression well, I mean, there are many impressions that are put out, you know, that you see in the media, but certainly one that's been attempted to get across is it's sort of an, an historical problem. In other words, this is something that was going on 30 years ago, and it's, you know, it's just let it, let it, let it go to sleep. But as you mentioned, we're in the midst of it. I mean, this stuff is still happening, and, and, and there's no reason to think that it wouldn't be, quite frankly, for anyone who's paying attention and, and has studied these things. Well, it, it, it's historically demonstrated proven from the Catholic Church's own official documents that sexual abuse by the clergy has been a known problem since the earliest years of the Church. The earliest legislation uh, 
aimed at doing something about it dates from the year 309. And at this stage of the game, mm. I'd like to mention the fact that two other gentlemen and I uh, published a book that came out this past April that is basically a history, a documentary history of sexual abuse in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, the name of the book is Sex, Priests, and Secret Codes. Wow. And um, it's not meant to be a polemic or a political statement or a harangue or anything of that nature, but simply a statement that this is the reality. Now, any organization, church or otherwise, has high points, low points, has its dark side. It's especially heinous when a church has a dark side and we simply say, well, there's bad and, and good in every organization, mm -hmm. and slough it off and try to uh, minimize the evil with that kind of an attitude. Um, the evil will always be there. It doesn't mean we have to tolerate it, nor do we stand by idly when it happens. Mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's basically what the, the, the scandal has been, not so much dysfunctional priests who have um, violated children, adolescents, and vulnerable adults, men and women. But the scandal has been the appearance of condoning it, mm. of encouraging it. Covering it up. Of, and, and what's worse, the worst part has been the fact that the leadership has done basically nothing to reach out uh, and, and provide pastoral and spiritual care for the thousands upon thousands of victims. Now, the past few years they're doing something, they're trying at least, but still in all, historically they have done nothing for the victims. The primary goal has been to protect the institution, to preserve the authority, the image, the money, and to do something uh, either punitive or, or otherwise with the dysfunctional priests who commit the crimes. Mm. The mess, in other words. Right, right, right. All right, look, uh, that's a good place to take a little break here, I think, all right? Sounds good to me. Okay, everybody, this is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. It's KOPN Columbia. Uh, Father Doyle, do you have any particular, I don't think you have a, have a website, but maybe there's a, a, an organization or someone you'd like to reference that we might give out a website or any information that you might like to give out, you're welcome to do that. Okay, after the break? Uh, you can do it right now if you like. Okay, well, I would like to, a uh, couple websites. One is um, uh, Snap. Mm -hmm. which is a, a wonderful organization mm -hmm. that represents victims. Yeah, they're the ones who put me in touch with you. I, I, couldn't, get a, I, I couldn't find a contact address for you uh, initially, and I went through SNAP, and they got me in touch with you. Yeah, them. well, I'm, everybody who wants to find me always seems to find me. Mm -hmm. uh, another one, uh, Richard Seip, uh, who is a, a man that I helped write the book with, has a, has a website that's really very, very it's excellent. And uh, he is, uh, Dick is a psychotherapist who's been involved deeply involved in helping victims and advocating for them and as a, a uh, expert witness, a consultant, and uh, he's written a number of books. He's specialized in the concept of cellular. He has a, a very fine website that's simply www.richardsipe, one word, dot com, S-I-P-E. All right, let's see. Good stuff on it. Uh, Richardsipe.com. And then SNAP is uh, actually snapnetwork.org. Yeah. Right. And then, yeah, then there's Bishop Accountability is another one that's, that's outstanding. Yeah, I've got a link to that one actually on my, on my front page right now. Okay, that's good. Okay, so we got a couple of them there. That's uh, one more time, everybody. That's snap, uh, snapnetwork.org. 
Then we've got Richard Sipe, that's S-I-P-E dot com, and uh, he's a co-author of your book, or one of the co-authors. He's one of the co-authors. Pat Wall, the other one, does not have a website that I know of, and I speak with him very frequently. Uh, I don't have one for a number of reasons, um, mainly because I just would never have time to keep it up. And I, I, um, I don't like to be strange as it may sound. Mm -hmm. I don't like to be that much out. In the public, I'm more concerned about the issues, the cause, the message. I understand. Than me. I understand. And and uh, I did actually find the website here for the book. If people are interested in the book, it's called Sex Priests and Secret Codes, and you can find it at that exact website, sexpriestsandsecretcodes.com. All right, everybody, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. Father Doyle will be back in just a second, okay? Sure. All right, uh, let's see. What do we do here? Let's throw on a piece of music here. Here's another song by Chris Coza. And it's sort of appropriate, I think, with the conversation that we were just having here. So it's Mike. Uh, one more time, Chris Coza. The song is called Patterns. We'll be back in just a minute with my guest, Father Tom Doyle. And we'll talk a little bit more about what's happening, what's been happening in uh, the Catholic Church. Mike Hagan, Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia. Back in just a few.
song from Chris Coza, a wonderful new musician that I ran into a couple weeks ago here in Columbia. Makes his home in Minneapolis, St. Paul. We'll hear a few more from Chris as we move through the program tonight. All right, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. Uh, let's see, KOPN's annual membership meeting is coming up in January. It's time to request your nominations for new volunteers to serve, uh, to serve on the New Wave Corporation Board of Directors. If you know anyone with a strong interest in community radio, public service, fundraising skills, organizational, promotional skills, all this stuff, please encourage them to submit their name. And you can find more information here at the station uh, at 915 East Broadway in Columbia downtown on the web, kopn.org. And the phone number here, 573-874-1139. All right, let's get back to Thomas Doyle. Father Thomas Doyle is a Dominican priest. Uh, in the Catholic Church, and uh, has an amazing story that we're in the middle of here. So, Father Doyle, let's uh, let's continue. I'd like to just, uh, to go back to around 1984 or so when uh, you mentioned toward the beginning of the program. This is when you sort of first got wind of any of this stuff, and and you actually were you got right in the middle of it almost right off the bat. Yeah. Uh, well, what actually happened? Um, you know, we had this case presented to us at the Vatican Embassy, and I was just following the documentation. And that was in the, in Washington? Yeah, Washington, D.C. At first, the the authorities from this diocese down in Louisiana, Lafayette, um, <laughs> informed us that I believe there were five or six families, and I don't remember the exact number offhand, had settled, uh, made a monetary settlement with the diocese of Lafayette because their children, their sons, had been sexually abused by a priest named Gilbert Gautier. So many of them. Yeah, well, there were only six, but actually there were a lot more. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is which is typical. Yeah, very typical. Mm-hmm. Now, what happened here is, you know, the first letter came in and basically said that we're just telling you this is for informational purposes. The cases have been settled, and this was, you know, this was unheard of by any of us. We, I had never heard of anything like. I mean, I've heard of of priests sexually abusing kids, but I'd never heard of the settlement business and all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Then, you know, the, and the man who wrote the letter, the, the assistant to the bishop, said that everything's under control. A couple of days later, we got another letter that basically said, uh, never mind, one family has backed out of the settlement and has obtained the services of an attorney and are suing the diocese. And... Uh, so that everything was not under control, and this is what opened it up. Mm-hmm. He uh, um, submitted a civil suit, initiated a civil suit on behalf of the 
the, the young boy and his parents. And when that was instituted, the district attorney in the area was obliged to uh, file criminal charges against the priest because it's against the law for an adult to have sex with a kid, mm -hmm. which they did. Now, that's where I got really involved because the attorney who the diocese hired to represent the priest on the criminal charges, and I made contact, and my purpose in contacting him was to hopefully provide information or resource information that could help them to deal with this priest and with the, the families. I had no idea where this was going to go. I certainly had no idea of the extent of it, and I had no intention of doing anything that would be harmful or critical to the institutional church. Mm -hmm. I, I really believed at the time that with the once the information was made known, as we were seeing it uncovered before us on a gradual basis, that the church, the bishops, would do the right thing and reach out to the victims and take care of matters, and that this, what appeared to be a uh, an impending uh, disaster would be... Would be uh, averted. Averted. Right. Well, that's not the way it worked. <laughs> Um, Mouton, Father, Ray Mouton, the, the attorney, and I became close friends, and I was working with him, and basically he said, look, at, i got a problem down here because, well, I've got one guy that I'm representing. The diocese is hiding about six or seven other priests, uh, well, and they were. Father Doyle, what's, what's the, the legal status of the whole thing? In other words, why, why are so few clergy people, and, and you know, I want to. I think I want to just throw this in right now too. You know, I'm not particularly picking on the Catholic Church or that profession. I'm 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 picking on anybody who's picking on children. I don't care what God you bow to, and I don't care what you, you know you say at the foot of your bed. I I'm I'm interested in you know in taking a good look at what's happening to children in our, in our in our world. You know, so sure. I'm not. But but I'm curious about uh, when a priest is. You know, discovered to have been doing these things, uh, is there a legal situation that's sort of not clear? I mean, why aren't they prosecuted? Well, I think they're not. They haven't been prosecuted traditionally because of the deference that has been accorded to the institutional Catholic Church, because of the power of the Church, and in many ways because of the mythology that surrounds organized religion. People mm -hmm. think that if we give deference to the church, we give them a pass, especially in criminal matters such as this, it will be good for us socially and maybe even spiritually. <laughs> well, when you do that, you're what not a helping. twisted, twisted idea. Oh, it's absolutely bizarre. And, and I mean, you know, for, and this was, this has been true throughout where there's, uh, you know, plenty of evidence that churchmen, church leaders, bishops use their influence and their power to influence uh, judges, police chiefs, and so on. Mm -hmm. In some cities, uh, that I've been, I've, I've discovered that there has been an unwritten rule that you you never arrest a priest. Well, you mentioned Chicago. I mean, sure. yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm. Chicago I'm, was a, was uh, yeah certainly one example. There have been other places I've seen it, mm -hmm. and in at one instance, I believe that it was Santa Rosa, California, several years ago. The police chief publicly admitted that he had. Uh, Influenced by the institutional church out there, and that because he used his position to cover up, and he publicly apologized for it. Mm. And because that's what's happened, um, where you have uh, situations where prosecutors will not prosecute, this has been happening in Chicago. They, they've said, "Well, we don't have enough evidence." 
Well, in several cases, they didn't have enough evidence there, but because the priests had taken kids across state lines, they were prosecuted in Wisconsin. And they found enough evidence there to convict. Uh, hmm. That's been the case uh, where the Catholic Church, and this is true of other churches as well, um, develop and cultivate privileges and perks in within society. And if they use these privileges and perks to help people, especially people that are not able to help themselves, there's nothing wrong with that. But when they use it to, I guess, solidify their power base to get away with cr criminal behavior, which is the case here, right. that's evil. That's mm -hmm. totally contrary to what any Christian denomination is supposed to be about. Right. Or non-Christian denomination, right. I know. Right, right, right. Okay. All right, so... Um you wrote a document in 1985, was it? Yeah, we wrote, we wrote a, actually what we, what that was. You know, there's been a lot of mythology about that document. All right, let's talk about that. Basically, um, when this thing, when the, when the media got a hold of the, the Louisiana case in late 84, it, it got, went all over the United States. I mean, there was coverage in, in the major newspapers and on, on the national networks, um, because this was, this was unheard of at mm -hmm. the time. And so a number of other cases started popping up rather quickly. And what was really happening is these were cases of, of children who had been sexually abused where heretofore they were not believed. Their parents mm -hmm. wouldn't believe them. The parents maybe were afraid to approach the church, feeling nothing would be done, and in fact nothing would have been done. So they started going public. And in a very short time, uh, where I was working at the embassy, we had become aware of the fact that there were dozens of these instances of of sexual abuse of children and young adolescents by Catholic clergy that had happened and, and the priests were either, you know, disappeared or were shifted from one parish to another, which is the classic mm -hmm. or common uh, approach to this. Right, right, right. So this was going on. And uh, by the end of, well, by the beginning of, of, two, of 1985, I remember... Uh, getting the idea that it probably would be good if we came up with some kind of a, uh, a little position paper to give to the bishops to help them to deal with these problems. I worked in a, in a position where I talked to bishops all the time, and many of them said, we don't know what to do, or, you know, or we, we're, we're mystified by this. How do we respond? How do we react? And they were saying this in all honesty and candor. They had not encountered these problems. These are the ones I had talked to, uh, and I believed them. Mm -hmm. And so what we did, and the other thing I think some of them had encountered the problems and had dealt with them in, in a manner that they thought was the, the, the only, the, the best acceptable way to do it, which basically was the wrong way, which was shifting these guys around. But that's how they felt. And so now they realize those days are over and we have to find a new way. Mm -hmm. So that is where the idea came and we decided, I spoke with a number of bishops and, and they all suggested use it, do a question and answer format with some some background uh, material to go with it, some resource material. I spoke with Mr. Mouton, and we and he and I were speaking every day on the phone. And the third party to our little endeavor was a man named Michael Peterson. And Mike was a physician psychiatrist who became a priest. Mm -hmm. And he specialized in treating priests with serious problems and really knew the ins and outs of this issue. He was very adept and expert at dealing with priests who were sexual abusers. So was he? So he was more familiar with the phenomenon in general, too. Yeah, he was. From, from, 
familiar with the phenomenon in general, and he was also familiar with the specialty with this with the, the phenomenon as it occurred with priests. Okay, all right. Unfortunately, by because of the the tradition the Catholic Church has had concerning human sexuality, the approach to many of these sexual problems uh, has been moralistic in the sense that it's it's been thought that well this is a question of morals it's an immoral behavior and when you have immoral behavior you simply stop doing it hmm. well <laughs> what appears to be and really is immoral behavior is often not very well controlled by the man um, because he has a, a, a disease a sickness desiring uh, desiring desiring desire desiring let's sorry I'm tongue tied mm-hmm. Wanting to have sex with a child, a prepubescent child, male or female, by an adult, is dysfunctional, disturbed behavior. It's it's listed in the American uh, and the uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders as pedophilia, mm-hmm. which means sex with a prepubescent kid. Right, and you know, if I can add just one thing, you know, the interesting thing, or one of the many interesting things, is that. You know, oftentimes, you know, this is a cycle, and it's because they were abused themselves, perhaps. But, but like you say, this is something that's not a new phenomenon. It just hasn't been spoken of, and and so it's hard to say where some of this dysfunction comes from. A lot of the time. Well, that's true, and that's the big issue. Where does it come from? After the whole thing exploded in 2002, there was a flurry of of, of opinions that came forth. I know some of the more conservative voices in the Roman Catholic Church claimed that it was a lack of fidelity to vows. Well, no matter how much you vow right. to be faithful and, and not act out sexually, if you are sexually dysfunctional, if you have a disorder, uh, that vow isn't going to mean anything because the compulsion level to act out is more than you can control. Right, and like I... you can make an alcoholic promise not mm-hmm. to drink, mm-hmm. but an alcoholic cannot not drink. Right, and there are... Uh, um... I have a question here, actually, that, that that came up in the chat room here that I think is relevant right now, so I'll ask you that. Sure. And then let me add uh, something afterwards. But anyway, the question here uh, is, when did celibacy uh, become something that was uh, happening in the church? When was that instigated? And, and do you think that that's relevant? Well, sure it's relevant. And I think celibacy, uh, you know, the, the, in the, the early centuries, the 4th and 5th century, different bishops and church leaders began speaking about it uh, and, and, and trying to impose it or encourage it. And then it became mandatory in, I believe, the year 1129 at the Second or Third Lateran Council, it was a major church council, okay. where it was mandated for all clergy in what they call the, the Western Church, in other words, the Latin Rite clergy. That excludes what we call the Eastern Rites, the, 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 uh, the Greeks, the Byzantines, the Russians, Ukrainians, and so on. These men then and now have wives, and, and they, they are married priests. There are such things mm-hmm. in the Catholic Church. So celibacy is not necessary to be a priest uh, at all. It's not something that's that's carved out in God's law. It's part of the tradition that was uh, that was uh, created by church authorities. Mm-hmm. Um, although it's dressed up with a lot of spirituality, a lot of religious justification. Historically, it's, it's fairly well demonstrated that the, the, some of those very compelling reasons for mandatory celibacy were the retention of property by the church. A married priest dies, and the property he owns goes to his wife and his children. Kill figure, huh? Yeah. Oh, um, and progeny. I mean, they, if you don't have children, you can't, they can't get your property. 
Mm-hmm. And then power. It was much easier to keep to have control over priests if they were celibate living in community. Right. Because you had control over their sexuality, which right. is a tremendous source of You know, and also, you know, as a as a I say this as a father of children, you know, I mean and sort of by extension, in other words, if you allow uh, a priest to be married, then I'm then I'm sort of extending that they would probably allow them to have children. Oh yeah. I mean, and if that's the case, trust me, your kids will come before your church. And well, they should. As well, they should. Right. Your church is supposed to be people. Right. And above all, you are supposed to be, as a priest or as a Christian, concerned about the welfare of people. Mm. The initial, the, the primitive church. That's all it was. Was people helping others in the name of Jesus Christ, who was their inspiration and in their midst. Mm-hmm. The, the primitive church didn't have buildings and property and power and bank accounts and all of this stuff. That only came you know, later on when the church was officially recognized by Constantine. All right. So what you're saying is true. And I, I just as an aside, you know, I, I've worked for 20 years. Uh, I don't like to use the term work, but I've, I've spent a lot of time for 20 years ministering to the victims of clergy sexual abuse and their families. Mm-hmm. A common denominator seems to have been the inability of many clergy and certainly many bishops to respond in a truly compassionate pastoral way. And many people have criticized the hierarchy saying, don't they get it? Don't they understand how devastating this is? And I believe one of the reasons that they don't get it those who don't get it, and there are many, is because they are not parents. I'll tell you, some of the most gut-wrenching times I have spent in my life have been listening to the mothers and fathers, good, supposedly good, devout, faithful Catholic mothers and fathers whose children have been violated by priests. These You cannot even begin to describe the depth of pain and betrayal that these men and women feel when they find out. First off, it's bad enough to find out your child has been sexually abused. And even that word, sexual abuse, does nothing Mm. to describe the horror of what it's all about. And secondly, when you find out that it happened at the hands of someone who you had placed complete trust in, the Mm. parish priest. Um, And I've had parents tell me, no matter how good and devout they were, they were parents before they were good Catholics. Mm-hmm. And that's when they got angry, and rightly so. You know, um, let me ask you, you know, a question that's related to, to the side note that you just made. It has to do with people that might uh, be drawn to the church for that reason, for access to children. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, that's sort of a... Uh, a common tactic for the pedophile uh, in in general is to try to find jobs and and careers that give sort of easy trusted access to children. Well, I, I think there's no question, you know, that if a man, I, I, I well, I, let me just say, I shouldn't be that absolute. That's an area that demands that's undergoing significant study by scholars right now. Why men who have these problems are attracted to church or religious life. Um, the Catholic Church has a much greater problem with men who sexually abuse children than any other denomination, although others have a mm-hmm. similar problem. Mm-hmm. But the Catholic Church seems to have more. Um, let me just say that several years ago, the man who's now Pope made a public statement that the number 
among Catholic priests is only very, very small, maybe one or a little slightly over 1%. Well, that's false. Mm. That's never been the case. I don't know where he got his information then, but it certainly was erroneous. The numbers generally, uh, conservative numbers, uh, percentages seem to have been 4 to 6%. And some of the people who've done uh, the numbers themselves say that it's closer, it's edging up between beyond 6%. And in some dioceses, the numbers have been between 10 and 20 at certain periods of time. And this, and, and this is a huge, I mean, it, it sounds like a small percentage, but it's a large number of people. Oh, of course it is. And not only that, look at the harm that's done. I know. Yes, I know. It's, it's mind-boggling. Hmm. I mean, I, I just told, was told the other day that at a major seminary, Los Angeles, St. John's, there were three years, I believe, where each class had about 30% of its membership ended up being sexual abusers of some sort. Hmm. That's a lot. Yeah, my gosh. You know, I mean, if if you had 30% of three or four classes from any given medical school coming out that turned out to be pedophiles or sexual abusers, the school could close down. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, there's certain medical uh, or areas of the medical institution that need to be looked at, quite frankly. Sure. Uh, you know, psychiatry, psychology, there's a lot of this stuff going on there, too. Again, it seems to be because they've got trusted access uh, alone, you know, with people that are, that can't defend themselves, you know. Exactly. And what makes it worse is not only that's bad enough, that you use your position and your power to take advantage of very vulnerable people because it ruins them for life. But what's worse is... Not necessarily. But uh, but many times it yeah. can. It can. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. It, it not, that's, not, not, that's not an absolute, but it can have a devastating effect for a good part of your life. Yes, it can. And in some cases, for the duration. It doesn't matter. It's, it's, well, it does matter, but I think what's important is that violating a child or a vulnerable person by somebody who's in a position of authority uh, has a variety of negative effects. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, short-term, long-term, it shouldn't happen. And I've seen people, you know, they, they, they've gone beyond it. You know, they've, they've had good, productive, happy lives, but I've also seen plenty of them that never seem to get, they can't get their, their gear up. Mm-hmm. And they, they remain trapped in, a, in this nightmare uh, for a long time. Yeah, no question about it. And, you know, and they're... they're, they're Learning now, you know, there are physiological, you know, brain-related issues for this. Things like limbic imprint and yes. and, and and things that are, I mean, they 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 are very very difficult to to break through. No question about it. Yeah, there's a lot of a uh, lot of research been happening, and I'm certainly not up on all of it, but I try to keep up on some to know because it's some I have to deal with the issue, and it's it's something that I feel I should know something about. But you're absolutely right. Um, and, and of course, unfortunately, in the Catholic Church, when this all came up, it was they tried to relegate it to the moral area, and, and the, the most absurd, the absolutely most absurd um, excuse that I heard given was by by some uh, you know clergy within the church said that it all started with the, the so-called birth control encyclical in 1968 with people not obeying. Oh come on! I, I kid you not! I kid you not! I mean that is. That is, that's like saying the moon is really made of green right. cheese, you know. Well, I tell you, that's a good opportunity to mention your book again because you dispel some of those uh, types of myths, certainly. Um, so let's mention the book and the website. 
Well, the book is Sex, Priests, and Secret Codes, um, and uh, written by Richard Sipe, Patrick Wall, and myself. We do have a companion volume we're working on right now, which will be the actual documents in Latin and English uh, with a commentary, and the second section of the book, the second volume, will have a much more detailed description of what's happened in the church's response to clergy sexual abuse since the 30s and 40s up until today, because there has been a response, and it has been um, a serious attempt by church leaders to deal with this in in many ways. Uh, Unfortunately, the the cases we're finding out that we're seeing all the time are the the bad ways to deal with it, cover up and everything. Right, you don't see the ones that were handled in a, in a, in a reasonable manner. I'm sure. You know, there's, there's also, I think there's a lot of responsibility at the top. The Vatican authorities can make things happen by simply saying, do this or do that. And they have known about this. Well, I'll tell you what, when, when we come back, uh, I've, I certainly have some notes here, and one of them says Ratzinger. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so uh, I want to find out where they were at, where, where John Paul was at uh, during this time 20 years ago, and then uh, maybe we can reconcile that with what's happening today, okay? Good. All right, hang in there. We'll be back in just a minute, everybody. It's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. It's KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. My guest is Father Thomas Doyle. You can find information about Father Doyle at the SNAP Network on the web at www.snapnetwork.org. And you can also find information about him, his partners, and his book at a website, uh, Richard Sipe, www.richardsipe.com. Dot com. Okay. All right. It's uh, let's see. Look at the clock here. There you have it. Straight up midnight. Now, uh, the 21st of November. Coming up on a holiday weekend here. I hope everyone has a great holiday lined up and enjoys themselves over the next few days. And uh, we'll play another song here to uh, get us into the new day here. All right. This one is called Exit Pesky. It's the title track from the CD of the same name. And it's, once again, my new friend, Chris Coza. All right, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, back in just a few minutes with Father Tom Doyle.
All right, everybody. Hey, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia. We got two more hours to go with the program. I'm so used to uh, uh, to having a guest on at midnight until two instead of eleven until one that I'm all screwed up. So, at any rate, I'll uh, refrain from any more of this nonsense and get back to my guest here. His name is Father Thomas Doyle. You can find him on the web at www.snapnetwork.org, and he has an interesting book. That is, uh, is is the book available, uh, or is it soon to be published, Father Doyle? It came out, I believe, in April. Okay, so it is available. It's, it's available. It's available, I think it's in some bookstores, and it's available certainly on Amazon.com, and I think in um, Barnes & Noble. Okay. But I know Amazon. I mean, you can get anything that's right. written on Amazon. Boy, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. I know it's available on Amazon for sure. Okay, no problem. And so you can find information about the book and uh, uh, lots of other uh, things connected to all of this stuff at Richard Sipe's webs- uh, website. That's richardsipe.com. Okay, so before the break, we were just uh, sneaking towards a discussion about the popes, uh, the, the former Pope John Paul II, and of course the current Pope Pope Benedict, uh, who was or, or is the former Cardinal Ratzinger from from Germany, and I know you spent a lot of time in Germany, uh, and believe it or not, I did too. You know, I was at Ramstein. I spent time at Kaiserslautern, and I have really. Where, where, where you, which base were you? Well, I'm not in the military, but uh, or I wasn't, but I, I, I worked. I worked for the Department of Defense, believe it or not, for for a bit of time in in my earlier days huh? and I was I was stationed in a place called Berchtesgaden which is down south in sure. in, in Bavaria but exactly where it is. but I had friends uh, in in K-Town we used to call it K-Town right sure. uh, in Kaiserslautern so uh, and and many of those friends were in the military and I mean the whole town was sort of built around you know the base and stuff yes. well I mean after the war Certainly not before the war, but uh, at any rate, there's some wonderful people there. In fact, there's a woman who I who, who's not my physical grandmother, but she, I call her my Oma. She's the most wonderful woman, and um, and I, I love her. And so, so I'm very familiar with uh, with Germany and 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 uh, you know the, the the situation there with the military. So anyway, you might continue there, but I know uh, Cardinal Ratzinger. I'm sure you ran into him back then in Germany. Well, actually, I, I never. <laughs> All that I was in Germany um, from 2001, I believe it was, 2001 to 2003, mm-hmm. and all that time Cardinal Ratzinger was in, in the Vatican. And right, so right. I I never really hobnobbed with uh, with people in the high layers of, of authority at all. I met Cardinal Ratzinger once many years ago when he was visiting the United States. And I have to admit, I was very impressed with him. He seemed to be a very humble, soft-spoken man. And I think, um, you know, he has been the target of a lot of uh, information or, or uh, presumption or suspicion that, that Cardinal Ratzinger engineered some kind of a broad-based cover-up concerning dealing with uh, reports of clergy sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. And I, quite frankly, believe that is nothing more than mythology, that there's he was not the engineer of any cover-up. He was the head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, and while he was there, under his watch, that office was in charge of dealing with particular cases referred to it of clergy sexual abuse. 
but he didn't engineer any any broad-based cover-up or conspiracy to uh, to um, uh, avoid uh, justice or anything of this nature. But he was part of the institutional church, and the one of the the key ways that they have dealt with this particular issue is through secrecy. Now, I'm not excusing it; I'm just explaining it. Mm-hmm. And as as the head of that particular office, he had to follow the policies of the Pope at the time, which was John Paul II. Mm-hmm. And so secrecy, with regard to this, has been the, the norm uh, for, for for decades, uh, for centuries. Secrecy in dealing with these cases has been the norm. So Cardinal Ratzinger, you know, he made this statement. He was approached by the media after 2002 and asked to speak on it, and he said he thought it was one percent or something like that. And then he also came out with the usual Vatican party line and tried to blame a good part of it on the on the press, on the media, claiming that they've exaggerated it and they've focused undue uh, amount of time and effort on the institutional Catholic Church. Well, And that was under orders, you think? Well, that was the... I don't know if it was under... Certainly that was Pope John Paul II's line. Right. And it might have been under orders, but it was the common approach of the people in the Vatican bureaucracy. Hmm. You know, they they have not looked at themselves, at the institution, at the governing structure, to discover why, what is it about the way we've governed the church or run the church or we exercised our positions that has allowed us to somehow rationalize that it's good for the church to keep this stuff covered up and to move these men from one place to another and not to be fully and completely open and reach out and do everything we can for the victims. Hmm. Uh, I mean, that's that's what you've got. That's what history has shown has been the case. Uh, and you can try to dance around that and dress it up any which way from Sunday, but the fact is, is that that's what the church has done. By church, I mean the official church. Right, right. Yeah, the, in other words, you, you don't see a lot of visits to people's homes <laughs> oh, <laughs> and no, that sort no. of thing, right? None, none, none. And had that been the case, had that been done, we wouldn't be in the mess we're in right now. Absolutely. Hmm. Um, so that was that's been the approach from the Vatican is is uh, you know minimize the issue, shift the blame somewhere else. Say well you know we've got as many cases, other parts of society have the same kind of problem. That's true, but that's not the issue. We're not talking about them. We're talking about us. We got priests out there who've been doing this to kids and and, and have been moved from one place to another, and even after they've come back from treatment, if they go to treatment, the, the the bishops oftentimes put them back in some form of ministry where they keep doing what they were doing before. Uh, and we've got, you know, there's a recent case in Chicago. The Cardinal in Chicago this past year given information about a particular priest that he was a known offender, he should not be back placed in active ministry, did it anyway. Contrary to the norms of the, the bishop's charter in the United States, contrary to the advice of his own advisory board, mm-hmm. that's what he did. And then Who's that in Chicago? Cardinal George. Hmm. And, uh, you know, as a result of his totally irresponsible action, more young children's lives have been seriously harmed. Hmm. Uh, but yeah. to get back to Cardinal Ratzinger, okay. you know, he was the man under whose watch the Vatican issued new norms for processing cases of sexual abuse of kids, among other things. 2001, 
and these norms are, are subject to secrecy. That's the way the process happens, and that's part of the, the way the church operates. Now, I'm not saying it's good, bad, or indifferent. I don't think it's good to be that secretive about these issues, but that is the way it has been. And he was just following the policy. Uh, but the interesting thing about Benedict XVI, since he became Pope, and there's a couple things that most people don't know, two or possibly three members of the former National Review Board, the Bishop's Review Board, that they themselves created mm -hmm. to do this, uh, to supervise, oversee, or advise them on sexual abuse. And is that the one that you were originally a member of? No, I was never a member of anything. Oh, okay. I thought that early in the 80s that you were... No, we didn't have... There was nothing in the 80s. Mm -hmm. All I did was... Michael Peterson, Ray, Ray Mouton, and I wrote that report. Right. All we tried... We did that, and we did not intend to start a revolution to... Uh, anything of this nature, we wanted to draw attention to the problem and draw attention to the bishops how serious this could be and how ominous it, it, it looks down the road and do something effective. And this is what we think could be done. And, you know, we were we were dealing with it on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, Mouton was, was and still is a very brilliant man, and he did a lot of the work in the, in the manual. But he's the attorney from, from Louisiana, right? Louisiana, yeah. Mm -hmm. He was also a father of three children, so he was really moved by, by you know, fear and, and paternal, you know, concern. Peterson was a psychiatrist. He knew that there were a lot of bodies out there buried and that there would be a lot more of this stuff going to, coming up because once the lid was off, people would, would go public with it. And I realized that, that the, the institutional church, as a, in a sense, you know, would try to deal with it in its traditional ways, using its power and its, its you know, former policies that would be useless. So we ended up with this report that we thought we would just offer to the bishops, and I began to notice late in 85, mid-1985, that there was a strong resistance to it. And, and in many ways, the certain people in the bishops' conference in Washington were turning against us, and, and I, that blew me away. I couldn't understand why, mm -hmm. because we were not doing it. Was it. How much of it was the economic impact of it? Were they so totally freaked out about the, the money side that they were going to well, be sued I, to death or something? I think they were freaked out about that, but more so about the power side mm. and about the fact that they didn't want anybody but bishops getting in bishops' affairs. Uh -huh. And I still think that one of the things they were afraid of was that the, the closets would be opened up and they would find instances of sexual abuse of kids among the bishops themselves. Mm, and I'm certain that's probably the case. I mean, It has been the case. And mm -hmm. one thing I learned through all of this is that the, the Catholic Church has no child protection policy, but it does have a bishop protection policy. It's very strong. Mm. And they have sought to protect the bishops at all costs, even to the detriment and to the sacrifice of the children. My gosh. Yeah, I know, it's, but that's a fact. Mm -hmm. um, now, that's not to say that every bishop in this country has been insensitive to this. That's not the case at all. Mm -hmm. A lot of them have honestly couldn't figure out what the best way to do with how to deal with this and, and really tried. And, um, and there certainly have been a lot of priests who wanted to speak out, were afraid to speak out because of punitive retributions from their bishops. Let's talk about that a little bit, um, about your own story. I mean, your your career was sort of cruising right along, it sounds like, and then then, then, then what happened? 
Well, it was cruising, and then it stopped cruising. And it got, <laughs> stopped cruising. <laughs> it sort of sunk a little bit, you know? And, and that's okay. I mean, no, I'm sorry. I don't mean to laugh. It's just funny the way that you put that. So. Well, yeah, I, I, you have to. You know, I've been in, the most important thing about this is my career changed. Mm. Uh, I, I still, I think I did probably the most important thing I've done in my life, which was hopefully to try to bring some support and some care to the thousands of victims clergy sexual abuse and some hope well i for one congratulate you you know i'm i i do not know exactly what the measures the church took uh, the hierarchical church took against you i'm sure you can tell us a little bit about it but i know it's not an easy path that you've taken certainly and and i appreciate uh, what you've done and what you're doing and i appreciate your courage so thanks if we haven't said it yet on the air i appreciate it and i know there are a lot of young people uh who appreciate it too and uh and 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 People in general, you know, you don't have to be young to see that this is a major issue, and uh, and something that needs to be discussed and and figured out so we can eliminate it. It's not about, you know, it's a way we have to figure it out so we can put an end to it in a reasonable manner. You know, I don't want to kill anybody. I just want to see these people get healed. That's exactly right. I think that you know the the best you can't push them around from one place to another, and the most important thing to me is trying to find some way to help the victims. Some of them, their lives are are, um, are lives of torment. Mm. So they suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder, from any number of psychological disorders, inability to have relationships, uh, to be married, uh, drug abuse, sex abuse, uh, alcohol abuse, mm-hmm. a whole host of things. And I, I, I really don't think that celibate clergy fully understand at all just how devastating sexual abuse can be. Mm. And I've had many, heard many, many priests and bishops say, well, you've got to move on, get over it. Even lay people. Oh, my gosh. And that's, that's craziness. That's like expecting somebody who's had their legs blown off right. to grow new ones. Well, you know what it is? It's, it's they're not familiar enough. They haven't spoken to the victims. You know, they don't, they, they haven't gotten close enough to really see because when you get close, as you know very well, you see very clearly. Yeah. And that's what, what in many ways, Speaking with the victims and their families, their mothers and fathers, is what has changed my life mm-hmm. dramatically because I've seen unbelievable suffering and it is, is caused tremendous anger not only in me but in others but in me toward the church that I have been part of, toward the clergy and the hierarchy because of the way that these people have been treated all too many times as the enemy with condescension, with dishonesty, with threats, um, and you know, once many and the, and the, the victims and their families have gone to the civil courts not because they wanted to sue or get money, but primarily because they wanted justice, the recognition, and they had been jerked around every which way from Sunday by the church's own system. You know, go to report to the bishop, report to the chancellor, or somebody who works in his office, and they're told, "Well, this will be taken care of. Trust us, we'll take care of it," and nothing happens. That they have, you know, a string of unanswered phone calls, waiting and waiting and waiting, and then they find out that the priest has been moved somewhere else where he can continue to do this. So many of them just got totally fed up hmm. and went to court. Now they don't even stop and go or collect two hundred dollars. They go directly to court right. because they realize that there's <clears throat> there's no hope in in expecting the institution to give them the kind of help that they need, mm. because in fact, the practice has been 
to stonewall the people to try to you know, the, the primary thing is you know make do whatever you can to avoid a lawsuit and people see through this they see that that's not really a sincere concern for them as persons mm-hmm. but it's a sincere concern for protecting assets and protecting image mm. so where does it stand right well before we go there what just Quickly, your most recent position with the church. Tell, tell us a little bit about where you. I, I know you were working as a chaplain in the Air Force for a while. Yeah, I was working as a chaplain in the Air Force not for a while, for a lot of years. I went in the Air Force in 1986, and it was incredibly. I loved it. I mm-hmm. loved being in the Air Force. I loved the military, the ministry, and I was fired from being a, cha- a Catholic chaplain in 2003 by the bishop who's in charge of Catholic chaplains <laughs> over. Well, it was supposedly a misunderstanding between the two of us. Well, it wasn't. It was a, a simple memo that I wrote for my boss in Germany stating, at his request, that if he didn't have enough priests to go around, you didn't have to celebrate daily Mass. And uh, there was a couple other things in it, but it wasn't a challenge to the Archbishop or church doctrine or anything. It was simply pragmatic. Mm-hmm. You know, we had three priests there, three bases to cover, one priest who was almost always deployed to Iraq, and the other two had to take care of the, the normal religious duties, plus being a chaplain to the military. Right, so they were saying you had to try to hold mass every day. Yeah, and and, and, the, and then that was sent. Some One woman found it and got freaked out and thought that it meant we were going to eliminate mass and faxed it to the archbishop. And within <laughs> a day, he had fired me. Well, of course, the suspicion has been that it had been anybody else they would have discussed this and it would have been handled in a radically different manner. But it wasn't anybody else, it was me. Mm. And I still strongly suspect that the major reason behind all of this was because of my outspokenness uh, against the critical of bishops because of the way they've handled these cases, because I've appeared in court, uh, because I have not uh, kept my mouth shut. Mm. Once I got to know victims and their families, I wasn't going to keep Yeah, how can you, you know? And so I got bagged. The Air Force was fantastic. They did not. They wanted to keep me. And, and uh, you know, I could have stayed on as a, a line officer or as a counselor. See, I'm also a certified addictions therapist. I could have stayed on in that regard. However, my age got in the way. And this, that's something I couldn't do anything about. So I left the Air Force in 2004, uh, a year after I'd been fired as a Catholic priest. I had no say in the firing. I had no opportunity to speak my side. I wrote a letter, um, but the archbishop never spoke to me uh, or my superiors. Um, simply rejected outright any explanation that I tried to honestly give and say, this is not, you misunderstood this thing completely. It only had an effect in Germany in one base, not anywhere else. But that was they did, that didn't matter. Mm. Amazing. Yeah, but I'm not... You know, I'm not. I haven't retained any bitterness about it. I just moved on in my life. Right. I mean, it's it, it, on on the one hand, it's allowed you to really continue this work that's so important yeah. to you. So. And any time I have, I have to say that you know, whenever I've gotten, there've been moments when I felt angry about it or, or upset about it. I have thought about the men and women I've known whose lives have really been shattered by the sexual abuse, and I say I've got no right to complain or cry in my beer or anything else, given what they've been through. So, you know keep quiet and go and help them, which mm-hmm. is what I've tried to do. Mm-hmm. What uh, what do you make of the situation right now? What's the sort of state of the state in the church? Uh, is there is there any progress being made? Um, 
uh, or or is it just more of the same? I mean, are you are you what do you see? Well, I, there's certainly there's progress. A lot of progress has been made. I look back on the twenty some years, the progress that, that has been made. Uh, you know, the, the Catholic Church now, uh, the hierarchy has done a lot more, and they're much more aware of of sexual abuse, and they've put a lot of policies in, in place. Now, the sad part is that all of this has happened because they have been forced to do so. That's the sad part. There's been no proaction. Mm-hmm. They've been forced by the by the civil law cases, by the media, by what we're doing now. And that just makes it worse and worse. I mean, w- what's happening as far as membership the church? I mean, are, are, are congregations falling apart? I mean, is the church in a crisis? What do you... Well, I think it is in a lot of ways, and, and, and you know, I travel around, and I'm I'm not really a good good barometer for that, but I can just tell you what I've seen. I've talked to a lot of people who are very dissatisfied. The sexual abuse nightmare, and I don't call it a crisis or a scandal because I think it's part of the life of the church. It's something that's very unfortunate. It's a very dark underside, and I say crisis because it's not momentary. That can be fixed in mm. a few days, and then it'll go away. And the scandal isn't so much priests sexually abusing kids. That's certainly scandalous. But the bigger scandal is the way the bishops have responded to it. Right. That's and, what's caused the anger. And I think the historical component that very few people recognize. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That historically it's been there. And unfortunately throughout the centuries it's been there, but the institutional church has never been willing to seriously study the effects of mandatory celibacy because there have been consistent violations of celibacy in a number of ways ever since it's been instituted. Mm-hmm. And again, you say it's not something that's actually required by uh, anything other than the hierarchy that was developed during some of these early councils. Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, you have just, we, we talked about it a little bit briefly, but celibacy, mandatory or enforced celibacy does not turn a man into a sexual pervert. Right. You know, I know a lot of men who are, are decent, good men, they're celibate priests. They may be gay or they may be hetero. That doesn't mean they can they cannot be good priests. But what it does do, I think, is it creates a mystique about the the tightly knit clerical subculture that we're somehow above and and, and uh, above people and above reproach. It also, I think, the mandatory celibacy business, uh, the way it's you're formed for it, uh, you are deprived of maturing in the normal, healthy way that most men and women mature. And that's part of that is through your relationships with others. Uh, certainly, you're, you know, you're sheltered from much of this. And, and, and traditionally, in the seminary system, uh, the virtues that were looked for in candidates for the priesthood were docility and obedience. If you were original, if you were different, if you were kind of a bit of a, a maverick, of maverick, you were out. And so obedience was a major, major factor. Of course, if you have a hierarchical government, obedience is a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, so celibacy, its effect on all of this is not as simple as some would think, but it is definitely there. And I think celibacy, if it were optional and married men were allowed to be priests, I think it would change the, the fabric of the clerical estate significantly. Uh, you'd find men that were perhaps less power-hungry and less ambitious. And as you said earlier, you know, really concerned about their children and their families first, which is the way it should be. Mm. You know, your family is more important than your career. 
And those men who haven't fought that way end up not having families. <laughs> not for long. No, that's the way it works. Yeah. But um, anyway, that's that's the you know the, I guess there's a lot more. And the guy to talk to about the celibacy is Richard Seip. Mm. His whole life's work has been around that, and he's absolutely brilliant and insightful at it. All right. Uh, well, we're at the bottom of the hour here. I think we're going to take another break, okay? Sounds good to me. All right, everybody. We've got Father Thomas Doyle on the line with us here. You can find out information about Father Doyle at the SNAP Network. That's S-N-A-P Network dot O-R-G. And you can also find information about him and his uh, co-authors of a book that's called Sex, Priests, and Secret Codes at a website addressed www.richardsipe.com. All right. Okay, it's Mike. It's uh, 12.30 in the a.m., November 21st. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia. We'll play another tune here by Chris Koza, and we'll come back and talk a little bit more with Father Doyle. All right. On the web at MikeHagan, M-I-K-E-H-A-G-A-N.com, you can link over to all these sites that I've mentioned earlier, and you'll also be able to get a copy of this program. We'll have it up on the web in the archives sometime tomorrow, and uh, if you think it's worth sharing with uh, others, you can point them our way, okay? All right, it's Mike. One more time, Radio Orbit, KOPN, 89.5 FM. What are we going to play here? This one's called Winning the Lottery. No, no, no. South, South Dakota. Colors 
Everybody, hi, it's Mike. Back at you here about 12:36 in the AM, November 21st. My guest is Father Thomas Doyle. We've been lucky enough to have him with us for the last hour and a half, and we're going to get right back to him now. Continue our conversation. Hi, Father Doyle. How you doing? I'm great. Thanks for sticking around. I know it's late. You're where? You're in Virginia. I'm in Virginia. So now 1:30 in the morning, your time. You got it. All right. Well, again, thanks for uh, thanks for staying up late. Okay? Well, I, I appreciate what you're doing with the show. Not for me, but I think I just hope it, it gets the message out to some people who perhaps haven't heard it. Yeah, that's the uh, that's the goal. Certainly, that's the goal. You know, the message isn't. A lot of people accuse me and others like me of hating the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. being anti-Catholic, anti-this, anti-that. That's not the point at mm-hmm, all. Mm-hmm. The institution has brought a lot of this on itself primary goal is helping the victims, many of whom are not able to help themselves in many ways. Mm-hmm. And, and on the other hand, many of whom have done unbelievable things <laughs> to draw attention to this issue. And it's the victims who are the real heroes, many of them who've you know, gone beyond their pain and tried to help each other. Right. They, have. Right. they have. So the, the point is really not so much me or what's happened to me, it's why I'm here and what I'm, what I'm about. Okay, uh, I've got a few questions here, and they've come in from the web. Do you mind if I go right ahead? Throw them your way, and and you can sort of address them as you know in, in whatever detail you like. And if you don't want to, you don't have to. I'll do my best. Um, there seems to be sort of a there, there are a number of people that have asked about. We were speaking earlier about orders. 
the Dominican Order, which you're a, uh, a member of, and all these different ones. There, there seems to be uh, an overwhelming number of people that are concerned with certain orders like Opus Dei and the Jesuit Order, or otherwise known as the Society of Jesus. Is there any reason that we should be concerned about particular organizations within the church, these two, maybe others that, we're, that, that, that we may or may not be familiar with? Is there anything to, I mean, I, I guess it's sort of a conspiracy sort of bent, but, but many conspiracies are real. Yeah, well, you know, but this, unfortunately, the, the perceptions that a lot of people have are, are, are fostered by the, the church's own behavior and by the, you know, the, the public relations efforts that we, we conjure up, which oftentimes are disastrous. Um, and I'm certainly not a person who's going to defend the institution in any way. I will not, because uh, to me the church is not the institution, the bishops and the priests. It's the people. And the most important people in that church are the most disenfranchised and the ones who are the most hurt. Hmm. Now, the Jesuits are a, a worldwide religious order. They've been around since the 16th century. Right. And have been the subject of a lot of controversy. On the other hand, they've done right. an incredible amount of good. So they're mm-hmm. they're very they're not homogenous. There's not not one one way of thinking and doing right. to the Jesuit order. Um, and they've done you know a lot of incredible good. But there's been a number of them who've been sexual abusers and uh, done horrendous things. Horrendous things. Mm-hmm. Northern Alaska, for instance, is just uh, is a nightmarish. Uh, things have happened up there. The Jesuits have been responsible for the Catholic Church in northern Alaska for, for into the last century. Now, the Opus Dei is another kettle of fish. That's a, a, a fairly secretive, even though they deny it, small organization of laymen and women. Some are priests, some are lay people. Mm-hmm. I should say laymen and women. Some are lay, some are priests and clerics uh, who uh, they seem to foster um, activity among the, the wealthier People, the more the people that are more established in society, they're very conservative. They have a rather kind of spirituality that I don't particularly agree with. You know, this inflicting pain on oneself, uh, self-denial, and, and all that sort of thing. I, I just don't buy into that at all. Mm-hmm. Um, the one that I'm concerned about, that I would be much more fearful of, is an outfit called the Legionaries of Christ, which is really a cult. It's very big. It was given a lot of support by the dead Pope, uh, John Paul II, the former Pope, the retired, deceased Pope, uh, because they're they're totally loyal to the to the to the papacy by their own admission. But they seem to have a very definite dark side, and in that regard, their their former leader had been credibly accused by a number of men, many of whom are now you know in the Middle Ages middle-aged men, of having sexually abused them when they were seminarians in their seminaries. Hmm. And they tried to pursue a, a due process against him over the years. Wow. Um, and they, they were short-circuited by Pope John Paul II several years ago, who caused the, the process to stop. And they, you know, claimed they... that They all claimed, this organization, of course, claimed he was innocent. He has a cultic, had a kind of a cultic role within this order. Mm-hmm. But Pope Benedict reopened the investigation, and it was completed, and within the past year, he issued a, or he approved of the final decision, which was to remove this man from all public ministry and order him into what they call prayer and penance for the rest of his life. Now, that wasn't any great option. That was, 
you know how the system works, mm-hmm. it was a severe penalty for this 86-year-old man, mm. basically because they apparently, by say apparently, because I haven't been privy to the to the documentation itself, uh, apparently they found proof of the accusations that he did sexually abuse a great many young men. Now, the best bet there to find out about that deal is to read Jason Berry and Jerry Renner's book called uh, uh, Vows of Silence which is an outstanding book that came out last year yeah, yeah, about yeah, yeah. This, this nightmare. And the religious order that they founded, the Legionaries of Christ, is, is a very rigid, a couple of people I've known quite well have referred to it as the Catholic Church's version of the SS. Hmm. These guys take a vow never to speak ill of the founder. They're very rigid. It's very cultic. Uh, the, uh, it's bizarre. It's bizarre. It, it, it you know, stresses that they're soldiers of Christ. Well, the Catholic Church is not an army. It's right. supposed to be the body of Christ with room in it for everybody. And you don't attack people that don't agree with you. Hmm. So the, the Legion of Christ is something that I would be... It was thrown, it's been thrown out of a couple dioceses in the United States. Uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul was one, and I believe one of the dioceses in Ohio, because they've tried to set up a parallel church, you know, their own little kingdom. Hmm. And some of the bishops buy into it because they're so conservative and they're so rigid, but they cater to the the wealthy and the established. Um, I suspect they may have done some good. I'm not quite sure what it is, but some have said they have. They're great fundraisers. Well, being a fundraiser is not the, <laughs> the true mark of a good Christian. Right. Christ was not a fundraiser, and the apostles weren't fundraisers, so that's not the name of it. That's interesting. L- let, me, let me ask you sort of... It may seem unrelated, but I think it's sort of related. First of all, let's mention that book again. Yeah, uh, uh, Vows of Silence, uh, subtitled The Abuse of Power in the Papacy of John Paul II. That's right. And that was, I forget the author. What was the author's name? Jason Berry. In fact, Jason wrote the, he's the definitive chronicler of this clergy sexual abuse. He wrote Lead Us Not Into Temptation in 1992, which was the first major book mm. about this issue. Ah, now I remember the name. I yeah. have Okay. <clears throat> that's, a, that's a must for anybody that really wants to understand this all, this whole nightmare. You've got to read Jason's books. Because he not only writes the history of it, but he, he's very insightful, and he's also a very faithful, devout man himself. Mm. Um, so you have that, uh, Vows of Silence, which really, it's it's a terrifying book when you read it, when it describes the, the religious order, uh, how they've operated, what they've done. Um, uh, it, it's it's really, it's, it's something else. That's all I can say. It's really something else. All right. Well, th- th- this is sort of related, I think, uh, and some, uh, some people are asking about it as well. You know, we've talked a little bit about some of these early councils, that some that go back, 1500 years or, 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 or something like that. But um, there was this, the Council of Nicaea that a lot of people talk about, and the, the question of the Gnostic Gospels is being asked. And, I mean, is it even something that you'd like to address, you know, because it seems to me like if, you know, the Gospel of Thomas and James and this sort of stuff has a different take, and, and maybe if that were reestablished or, or that stuff was recognized that it might change perception or I don't know I, I think it might I don't know a great deal about them to be honest with you okay. All right. I have a hard time I don't have time keeping up with the with the regular gospels <laughs> the medical gospels but you know the 
the Gospel of Thomas, I, I know something about them, but not a great deal. Not right. enough to talk intelligently right, right now. Well, the Gospel of Thomas is just beautiful, actually. You so, know, I remember reading parts of it years ago, and I, I, I think I had the same impression where it, it speaks about, uh, uh, you know, really the, the whole, probably the, the real issue of what Christianity is supposed to be about. And it's not about submission, hmm. you know, people to the will of a leader. Right. It was, I mean, Thomas, if, if I could put it in one sentence, it was three words. He, he, it was, be as Christ. Yeah. Was just try to be as good as you could be, basically. You know? Which is not a bad way to live. No, no. And that's, that's essentially, I, you know, I suspect the... But it doesn't really require a hierarchy like you mentioned. No, it doesn't require a hierarchy. To, to be the body of Christ, to be the church, you don't need a hierarchy, even though the church officially teaches that you do. That, you know, the hierarchy was, was intended by God. Well... You know, there's a there's a pretty thin historical proof for that. They will cite certain scriptural texts, but there's a lot of criticism of that. There's a lot of other opinions. Hmm. Um, Certainly, yeah. Yeah, but I think the issue is what's most important. What does the church need more than anything else? It needs what you said, being trying to be like Christ. It needs that more than robes and bishops and cardinals and popes and buildings and churches and so on. Oh, wow. I'm sorry I said, oh, wow, because I just read something on the web. These guys are great that are listening over the web because they're, they're able to write messages pretty much live as we're talking. And I'm trying to, I try to peek in there and see what they're saying as they're listening to us, you know. And uh, a gentleman just asked, uh, ask Father Doyle, if you would, what he makes of the whole Da Vinci Code phenomenon. And I'm thinking that your book, I wanted to ask you, uh, it's sex priests and secret codes and yeah. that sort of struck me so maybe we could talk a little bit about what that means and, and also the da vinci phenomenon well the title was dreamed up by dick Sype, not by me and i think what he meant in that was that you have the issue of sex and priests but there's secret secret ways of dealing with sexuality and sexual expression by the priests and by the institutional church that it's kept secret and that there are codes uh, about it there are coded ways of dealing with it, of, of responding to it. I was in, being deposed in a deposition a few, several, couple months ago by a, uh, a rather dense attorney in a certain state, and uh, he started attacking me about the book and said that, well, it's no coincidence that your book came out at the same time the Da Vinci Code came out. And I said the two had nothing to do with each other. And I know when, when Seip, Dick Seip thought up the title and suggested the title, he didn't even, I don't think he's ever even read Da Vinci Code, or he might not even have heard of it. Hmm. And then he said, you have the word sex in there because sex sells. I said, this is an absolute insane conversation, number one. Um, the title is there because it is about sexual dysfunction, and sex is what sexual abuse is about. Not because sex sells. Right. You know, I mean, it's, a lot of the books that have been written have, like, like Jason's book, Lead Us Not Into Temptation, uh, you know, titles like that. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I mean, it should be out there and in front. I mean, lead us, in, lead us not into temptation. Was a great book that I actually read. It was a long time ago, maybe ten yeah. or fifteen years ago. But, but, um, but, but by reading the title, you have to get into the book to know what it's about. Your book yeah. is pretty clear what it's about. And and you know, I'm, I'm not going to discuss the pros and cons of the title. I, I I'm not really concerned about the title. I'm more concerned about what's in it. Right. And, and I'm more concerned about what's in it, not to make a name for myself, Richard or Patrick, but to get the point across that this is a major, major issue. And 
diddling around with it, denying it, sandpapering it, and, and trying to devalue it is not going to help the victims now, in the past, or certainly in the future. Right, right. I agree fully. Okay, let's see. Well, um... By the way, I started to read The Da Vinci Code and never finished. Really? Yeah. I don't read novels very much. I read mm-hmm. the historical books, that kind of thing, and mm-hmm. I just... It's a great book. I just didn't finish it. All right. Okay. All right. Well, uh, let's see. What else should we talk about? You know, you you mentioned early in the program, uh, you actually used the term Church of the Future. Yes. And so I'd like to talk with you a little bit about that. You know, what do you see? And and, and what might... Uh, well, I, guess, I, I guess it sort of goes out to the people out there in the church, whether I'm a member of the, that group or not. You know, what should people... Uh, out there as members of the church, you know, my mother, this is a, an amazing thing, you know, my mother is a, is a practicing Catholic and, and, and loves the church. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll say something, you know, that I have, I've never said on the air before, but I'm a kid who was an abused kid. But it wasn't through the church. Uh-huh. But I learned a lot about what was happening in the church uh, sort of as I was working on learning about my own you know sure. situation. So I learned about about the whole general phenomenon of pedophilia and sexual abuse and all this sort of thing. But but when I uh, when I told my mother and my father about what had happened to me, and then began to express con- my own personal concern about the church, you know, yes. it just broke her heart. I mean, it broke her heart. I mean, it broke her heart twice. Once because of what had happened to me, and and then. By by what I was showing her, you know, the, the, what was going on in her own, in her own church, and and you know, I was mad and bitter at the time, and I wasn't trying to pick on her or or the faith, but I wanted her to know that these things were happening in and all over the place, and it wasn't isolated. They're all over the country and all over the world, frankly. Absolutely, and I, the churches. You know, the, sometimes those of us who are the most critical are people who love it the most. Mm. And as I said, to say, to, when I say I love the church, doesn't mean I love the hierarchy or the buildings or the bishops. Mm-hmm. It's the people, it's the concept of a people of God mm-hmm. uh, who do, you know, are there for each other. And, and they, that's, and unfortunately, it doesn't, the Catholic Church doesn't belong, the bishops don't own it. It's not their playpen, mm-hmm. you know, or a board game. And unfortunately, you said, what's happening in the future? What I see, and I'm no great prophet, trust me, mm. but what I've experienced is a growing number of people just walking away and growing up and becoming more mature. There's one thing that I think is the, the, the institution has dumbed down the lay people for so long that you know, mature, responsible, thinking men and women walk into a church and they revert to being like four-year-olds. Mm. And they're afraid to criticize Father. Father says, you, you know, never criticize the priest, obey, 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 and all this nonsense. And, you know, these are the people that really know the score. If, if we listened to lay people, this sex abuse thing wouldn't have developed into the nightmare it has. Mm-hmm. So they're walking away. People are gradually growing up, and they're becoming more mature, and, and they're, the, the playing field is being leveled. And at the same time, in our country at least, there's this ultra-conservative hierarchy. Not all of them, but many, many of them are very, very conservative. Oh, yeah. They're bombastic and, and brutal almost. Mm. And they think they're going to succeed 
by clubbing people with a lot of rules and regulations and domination, and it isn't working, right. they're going to walk away. Um, you know, the, the latest, they had a bishop's conference meeting, and they issued another edict about homosexuality, you know, the, referring to them as intrinsically disordered, mm-hmm. and basically parroting what the party line is, right. and then trying to get people to believe in the birth control again, the church's word on that. I mean, come mm-hmm. on. This is 2006, and it just isn't going to work. Right. And at the same time, the whole hierarchical, monarchical approach to dealing with this, and we have the truth that you don't, mm. better believe the way we want you to believe or tell right. you. Yeah, that's a game that's really sort of leaving town in, 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 in many different areas of endeavor. Oh, you know what I mean? You bet. And I think a, a big part of it is, is, is information. Sure. You know, I mean, the, the availability of information for people now is, is, is pretty amazing. Uh, a guy sent me an email today, and in the subject line, he wrote, uh, it's, it said something like, uh, the watchers are now being watched. And, uh, he, and, and along with that was an email about with something that was caught on video on YouTube. And it's like, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's now become pretty easy for the average person to find out information about anything that they're interested in finding out about. A lot of truth to that. There's a lot of truth to that, and I think the watchers are being watched, and and you know the the attitude of disdain sometimes and, and arrogance is one of the things that has been remarked about throughout this whole thing. The arrogance has been almost unbelievable, mm-hmm. and uh, the fact is, is you can't, you know, if you're going to be a leader in a in a church, a Christian church, you cannot have this attitude of arrogance because. Scriptures say the leaders are supposed to be followers and, and they're supposed to be mm. servants of all. Well, you know, come on, don't don't try to create this illusion by being authoritarian and, and bombastic in the way you you exercise your authority. It's just not going to work. Mm. All right. Well, look, um, we've got a few minutes left, or. We could take a break, and if you want to stick around for a little while longer, I'll, I'll make the offer since we've got uh, more time left in the program. I can, I can do my thing, so don't feel obligated in any way, but if you'd like to, uh, you're welcome to stick around for another 15 or 20 minutes or half hour, whatever you like. How about 15? And then it's, it's, I've had a long day. I was up at 5 a.m. this morning. Oh, and I know. It's 2 in the morning there now. 2 so. in the morning. I'm getting to the point of diminishing returns here. Where <laughs> what little sense I had is going to be gone out the window. All right. We'll take a quick little three-minute break here, okay? Sure. And we'll come back and we'll talk with uh, we'll talk to you for another fifteen or so. All right, everybody, it's uh, Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, eighty-nine point five FM. It's just a little before one a.m. on the twenty-first of November now, and we'll play a song here called "Morning Moon." Another great piece of music by Chris Coza and Company. And we'll come back in just about three minutes or so at the top of the hour here with Father Thomas Doyle. One more time on the web, you can find out information about Father Tom at uh, snapnetwork.org and also over at Richard Sipe's website www.richardsipe.com and you'll be able to uh, you'll be able to link over there um, from here on out uh, over at my site at mikehagan.com all right all right one more time chris coza this is called morning moon it's a new moon as a matter of fact uh, today so uh, here's to it <laughs> Bye. 
By the misty morning moon, I see your breath travel in the dolphin umbra. Well, I wait for you to wonder out loud if you can't wait to see me again. By the misty, many shaking blades of grass And the winds that come through the shadows Well, I wait for you to wonder out loud If you can't wait to see me again tonight Where the socks, sweat feet, sweaters, stamp and dirty jeans In the middle of a soccer field Falling asleep When watching the city stars The day never is bright They were just last night The morning bell and color guard routine and the misty morning Oh, I wait for you to wonder out loud If that light will really be burned If it takes the ground Wet socks, wet feet, sweaters, stamps and dirty jeans In the middle of a soccer field Falling asleep Oh, and I The day never as bright as they were just last night. Oh, my sunless skin. Oh, my sweet And how I never knew all of my songs. That's Morning Moon, another great song from Chris Coza. And that's off a new CD of his. It's called Patterns. Glad I ran into him. Good music and uh, good conversation tonight with Father Thomas Doyle. On the web one more time at uh, richardsype.com and also at snapnetwork.org. Let me read something real quick here to you. It's KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM, just about 1 a.m. A little bit of something about going, uh, going down in town here. Columbia Visioning, Big Meetings. 
November 28th and the 30th. Plan now to attend one of the two big meetings. This is your chance to share ideas about the future of Columbia. The meetings are very important. The ideas generating from the big meetings will be topics for the citizen topic groups that will begin meeting in January. Be sure that your vision for Columbia is heard. Big meeting number one is Tuesday, November 28th, uh, 28th at 6.30 in the Kimball Ballroom, Stevens College. And uh, big meeting number two is Thursday, November 30th at 6.30 in the Performing Arts Auditor- uh, Auditorium at Rockbridge High School. Be sure you attend, or don't cry when the CD doesn't turn out to be like you wanted it, okay? All right, uh, <laughs> Uh, back to business here. Father Thomas Doyle, thank you for sticking around. We've got a couple more questions. Father Doyle, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, sorry about that. Okay. Lost, I lost my mic for a second there. Never know what's going to happen at, at uh, 1 or 2 in the morning here at the radio station. So, okay. Um, well, uh, we haven't, you know, when we're talking about the Catholic Church, we end up primarily talking about men. Uh, most of the time. So there's a question about women, and, and I agree. W- what's the role of women? And I'd like to know what's happening with women in the church and also, uh, you know, for women that are outside of the church, maybe, you know, that are members of the church and the congregations. How do they fall into this whole story that you're telling? Well, I, it's, again, I, that's something that's really not my expertise is the whole role of women. I, I will say that I agree with the, the assessment there's been institutionalized misogyny because, you know, women, when you have a, a power structure that's all males and it's all supposedly celibate males, or at least officially celibate males, mm-hmm. it's, it's hard to, to, um, to get by and say, well, women are equal and we respect them and so on and so forth, but they can't do anything. They have to just be obedient and be quiet. So there's obviously a lot of uh, uh, on the part of uh, a lot of disgruntlement on the part of a lot of women. Mm. A lot of women feel they should be allowed to be ordained priest, have more uh, authority, more more voice in the system, and, uh, and I believe certainly rightly so uh, that many will say that a lot of the problems with the sex abuse stuff is the patriarchal clericalized society, and there's a lot of truth to that, too. Hmm. Uh, there's been a lot of, you know, very good scholarship done on why all of this stuff is happening that I think the, the institution does not want to listen to, does not want to acknowledge. Maybe that's something that we could sort of finish off with. Maybe you could tell us a little, maybe you could point some people in uh, some some directions on what they might, um, you know, if they really want to educate themselves and and find out what's going on and maybe how we can help solve some of these problems. I mean, I'm interested in what we can do to try to you know, certainly it needs to be exposed in order for people to understand what's happening, but I think the further goal, obviously, is to, you know, is try to minimize it where where we don't have as much of a recurrence of it in general. Well, I agree, but I, I believe, as I said, that to me a very strong need and a, a powerful area right now is academic research into why this phenomenon happened, because it's not just about sexual abuse. It's about why it happened. It's about the Catholic Church's traditional philosophy of human sexuality that in many ways is inadequate and, and unrealistic. Um, it, you know, Not acknowledging the fact that there are men and women who are homosexual by, by nature. They're not freaks or deformed. They're, they, they are part of the 
creation that, that the Lord made. Mm. Um, and this, of course, the, they'll say, well, right away you're promoting, you know, promiscuity and all. No, that's not the case at all. And, you know, you have that whole area. Another area that I think is, is, is certainly coming under scrutiny is the whole power and influence of a clerical subculture uh, where it mm. closes out in many ways, whether it admits it or not, it closes out lay people, their influence, uh, and it's it's a, a church of, of you know a couple billion people, um, most of whom are in, in some form of intimate relationship with somebody else through marriage or otherwise, that's run by a, a, a tiny, tiny minority of celibate males mm. uh, who are trying to tell all these people how to live their lives. Of course, the credibility. What another thing that's happening is the, the the concept of magical thinking, where all of this blind belief is is fraying at the edges and yeah. is diminishing. That's a sort of a cultural phenomenon that's happening in general. Yeah, it is. And it's 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 actually, you know, I talk about a lot of different things on this program, and we we, we go there sometimes, and there's some very very interesting things that are coming out of that subculture, you know. And I think it's healthy. Hmm. You know, you know, I'm priest or I'm a bishop and therefore I'm more powerful and I have I have I can wield this magical powerful spiritual stick against you if you don't do what I tell you I'll mm-hmm. tell God to do bad things to you. Well that's that's silly to mm-hmm. believe that kind of thinking. But people have. Right, right. You know, it's nonsense. Yeah, we, we, we touched briefly on, on the Gnostic Gospels a little bit earlier and I think there's some of those ideas are coming back out into the into the culture, this idea that that man you know, is capable of being Christ-like, basically, you know? Well, you've got a lot of examples through history. Mm. That's for sure. Isn't that the truth? And in women who've been Christ-like. Certainly, yeah. You don't have to look like Christ to be Christ-like. Yeah. You're male. Yeah, you know, there's there's this... I had a guy on the program a couple months ago. His name is Brian Trenton. He wrote a book that's called Remembering Hypatia. And I'm not sure if you know, if you're familiar with the story of Hypatia of Alexandria... But uh, she was one of the uh, she was the last living librarian of the Library of Alexandria, really? and she was murdered in, in in brutal fashion, basically by the church. But but she was one of these amazing amazing women in history that was sort of wiped off the yeah. off the record books, you know. That's unfortunate, and you know, of course, you know when you say she was murdered by the church. Well, she was murdered. I, mur- I would say I, you know I prefer to say she was murdered yes. by. By a freakish aberration uh-huh. out of the church. I think that that's a much more fair way to say it. I agree with you. Because church is people. Yeah, churches aren't... Church yeah. is people. It's church is the, is the people at an AA meeting. Mm. And church is the people waiting in the in the emergency room. Mm. They're the men and women in the, in the uh, waiting in line in the AIDS clinic. That's church. That's, that's where Christ would probably hang out and spend a lot of his time. Well said. You know, and not in palaces. Mm-hmm. And so on, walking around in fancy robes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Isn't that the truth? And it is. And you know, the most credible church men and women are the people that try to do that, mm-hmm. um, and not the ones who, who, you know, carry a big stick of yeah. authority. You know, and I think it's I, I think it's interesting to note that it is a social ordination. You know what I mean? I mean, it's it, it's an ordination. That's that 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 that's basically men. Granting other men certain rights, privileges, and knowledge, or whatever you know. I mean, it's uh, the ordination is something that's done by humans. Sure, it is. It's it all is done by humans, mm-hmm. and, and you know, there's very, very little if you boil all that off. That's basic, and and you you know, I often wonder, you know, as I've gone through all this stuff with the sex abuse, it's been a tremendous liberation for me. 
Why do people who are part of organized religion, Catholic or otherwise, get angry with those who don't think the way they do? Mm. I mean, what is it? I'm a Catholic or I'm a, I'm a Presbyterian. Mm-hmm. Why do I have this, this sense of competitiveness that I've got to make everybody think and walk and talk like me? Right. I mean, that's generated so much trouble for forever. Sure. And, you know, everybody claims they're the true religion. Well, who knows right. whether there is any true religion. I mean, you wonder, do we need organized religion? It's a good question. Now, I'm sure that that would drive a lot of people nuts who are involved in it, where it's their business and their way of life. But there have been billions of people created by a higher power before there was Jesus Christ, Christianity, the sacraments, mass, priests, or any of that kind of thing. And they were doing good things for each other. And what was it that propelled them to do this, that, that promoted goodness, that will probably was the primordial sacrament, mm. love in the human heart? That's, uh, you know, one one obvious observation, you know, to me is that, you know, there's a great sense of lovelessness, you know, that, 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 that brings this stuff about. I mean, that's that seems to be at the at the center of it is, you know, everyone's looking for love. You're absolutely right. And, you know, when you have churches do a lot of condemning, mm-hmm. organized churches, organized religion, do a lot of condemning. Right. You know, you were talking about this, you know, the, the primordial, and you know, we we talk about about shamanism on 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 the program sometimes. And you know, if you've never investigated that, there's some very interesting ideas that come from from the from the prehistoric, from the Paleolithic. You know. Sure. So, anyway, look, we are just about there, I think, and uh, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time, Father Doyle. Well, I I want to say on behalf of the men and women who've been seriously harmed by clerical abuse. On their behalf, I want to thank you for taking the time to allow me to be on your show. Mm. And hopefully, some of the things I've said will do something to help make it better for some of the victims. Well, I think you're doing great work. That's and what we'll, it's all about. Yeah, I, 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 I'll say it again. I think you're doing wonderful work, and, and we'll, we'll do my best to share this program with as many people who'd, uh, who'd like to hear it. So. Hey, thanks so much, and have a great Thanksgiving. All right, I'll do it. And I'll mention the, uh, the websites again here uh, throughout the rest of the show, okay? Thank you. All right, everybody. It's Father Thomas Doyle. One more time. Great job. Thank you very much for your work. Thank you. All right, everybody. That's it. Uh, we'll mention the websites here. Snap, snapnetwork.org. You can find information about Father Doyle there. You can also uh, find lots of interesting stuff at the website of Richard Sipe. I've been snooping around there as we've been talking to Father Doyle throughout the throughout the program. He seems to be doing very interesting work. So uh, that is actually at Richard Sipe, S-I-P-E, Dot com, and you'll be able to link the, to uh, to Father Doyle and all his material from from MikeHagan.com from here on out. Okay, so uh, let me take a quick break here, and we'll come back and uh, do some of the things that we normally do in the first part of the program. Okay, all right. This song is called "Winning the Lottery." How about it? It's Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit, KOPN, Columbia, eighty-nine point five FM. One more time. This is Chris Koza.
Mike, you listen to Radio Orbit. That's Chris Coza. That's from his CD called Exit Pesky. Great stuff from Chris, a guy that uh, makes his home up there in Minneapolis, St. Paul, but was down here in Columbia just a few weeks ago playing some music. And I happened to see him and chat with him. And Anyway, great music, and thanks for making it, Chris, and for sharing it with us tonight on the web at uh, chriscoza.com, by the way. Okay, And you can also link to him from now on uh, from my music uh, page at the website over at MikeHagan.com, all right? Okay, uh big thank you to Father Thomas Doyle. Uh, we'll sort of switch things around now and uh, do what we normally do at the beginning of the program, and I'll say hello everybody listening over the web or over the traditional airwaves, whether you listen live or whether you listen from the archives. Hello, and uh, thanks for listening, all right? We are streaming live right now and every week via Cosmic Waves Radio Network, www.cosmicwavesradio on the web. Uh, and uh, thanks to everybody over there for doing it for us every Monday night. 
Thanks also to Larry, the wonderful Larry Norger, the web wizard, as always, doing great stuff. Check it out. Uh, always something interesting for you there on the website at www.mikehagan.com. To everybody out there who's been sending music and poetry and art, thank you. Send more and more and more. We'll put it up, and uh, Larry does a great job of putting it all together there over the website. So take a look, see what you think, and let us know. Okay, You can send me an email. You can contact us really easily through the website. And we uh, take all criticisms strongly and lightly. All right? All right, let me know what you think. The forum is busy. You can always go over there and chat with some interesting folks and some topics that are lively. And there is a live chat room up every uh, every Monday as well where uh, people who listen to the program can interact with one another and me as we do the show. So uh, I encourage everyone to do that, all right? Get in the chat room, guests and listeners. I love it when people participate over there. It's really fun, all right? Okay, if you want to send me an email, orbitradio, O-R-B-I-T-R-A-D-I-O at AOL.com. On the web, www.mikehagan.com. Let's see, before we do space weather and stuff, let me tell you a little bit about what's coming up the next few weeks, okay? Packed with great stuff from now until the end of the year for sure. Check this out, okay? All right, next week is a gentleman whose name is Professor Lewis Greenberg. And I call him Professor because I'm not sure if he's a doctor. I'm sure he is, actually, but I'll just call him Professor Lewis Greenberg. He is a man who was a contemporary and a peer and a partner of sorts with Emmanuel Velikovsky, one of my heroes. And if you don't know who Emmanuel Velikovsky is, well, you should check him out. In fact, I think Velikovsky.org is just a great place to start. So, anyway, Professor Lewis Greenberg, a guy that used to hang out with Emmanuel Velikovsky, edited a bunch of his work and, you know, wrote with him. And he has his own... Uh, he has a couple of books that he wrote himself, but we'll, be, we'll primarily be talking about about Emmanuel Velikovsky, but I'm sure we'll touch on Lewis's work himself. But anyway, he's a really interesting guy who's had an amazing life and uh, just really fortunate to um, have been introduced to him by one of, one of our listeners. So thank you so much. And it's going to be a great program. And again, check out uh, Emmanuel Velikovsky. He was an amazing man who did outrageous work and uh, work that's probably as relevant right now as it's always been, right? Uh, That's on the 27th. Um, On the 4th of December, the following week, is former Nebraska State Senator John DeCamp. He's the author of a book that's called The Franklin Cover-Up, and it has to do with some events that happened in Nebraska in the 80s. And it's a remarkable and sad and disgusting story, Uh, but it's one that's going to be told, and uh, John DeCamp has done a great job over many years trying to uh, trying to spread the information about what happened at Boys Town, what happened at the uh, Franklin Credit Union, and how deeply the whole thing goes. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you'll have to go find out for yourself, right? But just uh, Google John DeCamp, D-E-C-A-M-P, and we'll speak with him on the 4th of December. On the 11th of December, we'll have Jack Cole. Uh, Jack's the executive director of LEAP, L-E-A-P, that stands for Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. And we'll be talking about drugs and drug policy and drug law and what we can do to get out of this absolutely 
disastrous position that the federal and state governments have, have put uh, so many people in. Wonderful work that Jack Cole and the people at LEAP are doing, by the way. And I'm sure there are some members here, hopefully some, some of the cops here in Columbia and in, uh, you know, in Missouri are members of LEAP. And I hope that some of you listen to this program. And if you do, check out what they're doing and look at uh, the work that Jack Cole and these guys are doing. I mean, it's it's reasonable and intelligent uh, approaches to the problems that we have with drugs in our culture. You know, and uh, you know, we could talk for a long, long time about it. And we'll talk at least for a couple, three hours with Jack Cole on the 11th of December. Again, the executive director of LEAP, Law, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. All right, on the 18th of December, Jay Widener. Can't wait to have Jay back on the program. We'll talk about the film and how it's doing. We'll also sort of welcome the halfway point between the year 2000 and the solstice in the winter of 2012. We'll be halfway there. Uh, on the 25th, on Christmas, we'll have Jan Irvin back on the air. Uh, if you were listening to the program a few weeks ago, you may have heard Jan. He's the author of a book, co-author of a book called uh, Astrotheology and Shamanism. And also the uh, co-producer and uh, presenter in an amazing film called The Pharmacratic Inquisition that you can find on the web. And uh, I encourage everyone to take a look at what the, work, uh, the work that Andrew and Jan are doing. And in fact, I think Andrew will be joining Jan uh, for the program on Christmas. And we'll talk a little bit about Christmas and uh, the history behind it. All right, let's see. Dale Pendell. Still haven't nailed a, da- uh, a date down with Dale, but it's going to be a great program when we get him. And I, th- I spoke with his publisher just a day or two ago. And Jim Beard. I'm going to start recording some material from my elder and my grandfather, uh, Jim Beard, wonderful Lakota grandfather of mine from Colorado who has decided to share some of his wisdom with you all and with me. So uh, we'll have Jim Beard sometime in the next couple of months. Stephen Herod Buner. I just spoke with Stephen today, as a matter of fact, and uh, we're going to record an interview in just a couple weeks. You know, Stephen doesn't like to stay up late, so he doesn't care if I give him a hard time on the air about it either. But anyway, he does his best work in the morning at least his mental work, I should say. I don't know. That's probably why he doesn't want to be on the air with me tonight. He's got a beautiful woman there with him. So, at any rate, Stephen Herod Buner will have him back on the program uh, sometime in the next month, probably. I think I think I'll probably start off the year with Stephen. It's a wonderful green way to begin the year with some some of the words and the work of Stephen Herod Buner. And Stephen's been on the on the program a couple times before, once by himself. Uh, back in 2004, and then uh, in an appearance that he made with Dennis McKenna, which was fantastic, uh, just last year. Uh, If you haven't heard that stuff, check it out. Stephen Herod Buner is just incredible, and uh, we'll have him back in just a couple of weeks, and I can't wait to talk with him. I'm not not even sure what we're going to talk about, but I'm sure it'll be great, and he's always doing interesting work. So, Okay, um, John Major Jenkins. Uh, John's going to be in South America, but he's going to sort of report in before the 18th, so Jay and I can... Uh, talk a little bit about what he's up to, and lots of other stuff coming up uh, after the first of the year, okay? So, all right, um, 26 after the hour, and I don't want to do space weather. I need to take a break. The whole thing with uh, Father Doyle 
made me need to take a breather. So let me take one more break here. I got some great music still uh, left to play. So I'll play another one here from Chris Coza. This one is called July. And then we'll come back. I'll do space weather and we can talk about um, some news and whatever else might be happening out there in the world. And if you have any questions or comments or whatever, you can just throw, the, uh, throw those up on the uh, on the website in the chat room if you're over there. Or if uh, you want to send me an email, you can do that as well. And uh, when we come back, I may even open the phone line. If somebody's local here or, or out there wherever, I'll give you the phone line. If somebody wants to call, you're welcome to call them and talk. Okay? All right, one more time. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. Just about 1.27 in the a.m. now on the 21st of November. This is July. Chris Coza, back in just a minute.
July. Another great song. Chris Coza. All right, it's Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 1.30 or so in the AM, all right? And let's see. What do we got here? Earth Day. Help make Earth Day groovy. The Earth Day Coalition is looking for a volunteer interested in coordinating events in the west end of Peace Park. Storytelling, yoga, uh, where the hell am I? Drumming and a teepee have been popular in the past, and we are open to other ideas. All right, the volunteer will recruit and schedule activities and be at the Earth Day Festival Sunday, April 22nd, facilitating the smooth running of activities. For more information, contact Jan Weaver at 573-882-3037. All right, um, we had Father Thomas Doyle. A pretty intense conversation. So now we'll lighten it up just a little bit. Hi, this is Tony Friedman with your official Chuck Norris moment. Chuck Norris originally appeared in the Street Fighter 2 video game, but was removed by beta testers because every button caused him to do a roundhouse kick. When asked about this glitch, Norris replied, that's no glitch. And then roundhouse kicked the questioning party. This has been Tony Friedman with your official Chuck Norris moment. Hi, this is Tony Friedman with your official Chuck Norris moment. Chuck Norris once roundhouse kicked someone so hard that his foot broke the speed of light, went back in time, and kicked a raptor in the face. This changed history in ways that the human mind cannot even fathom. This has been Tony Friedman with your official Chuck Norris moment. All right. Thanks, Tony. That's all I needed to get things lightened up a little bit. And I even was talking with the mic on, on the telephone. All right. So, anyway, let's do space weather here, okay? Uh, on the web, by the way, Mike Hagan, H-A-G-A-N dot com, and also K-O-P-N dot O-R-G. All right? The Leonid meteor shower. Um, if you were out and about over the last couple mornings early, you had a great opportunity to see the peak of the Leonid, uh, Leonid meteor shower. It was uh, supposed to be sort of faint, but mostly it was amazing. There were a lot of people, even here in Missouri, that saw some pretty amazing fireballs that were flying around in the sky. And uh, there's some great imagery that was taken as well. So if you're interested in looking at some of the things that were seen flying around in the sky, over the last couple nights, you can hop on the web, go over to spaceweather.com, and uh, some great pictures that people from all over the planet have taken uh, over the last few days. Now, it's a new moon, you know, well, I guess officially yesterday, a few hours ago, but uh, um, basically a new moon right now, which means that, you know, there's no moon in the sky. And, well, it's there, you just can't see it. And... Uh, very dark, in other words, that's what happens on the new moon. So even tonight, you'll probably get a chance to see some more of those Leonids, even though it might not be as uh, as strong a showing as it's been for the last couple of nights. They're sort of trailing on the way out of here. You might get to see some, some things as well tonight. So anyway, on the web, like I say, at spaceweather.com, we got a, a whole gallery of photos of the 2006 Leonid meteor shower. All right? And uh, as I said, tonight, slim chance there might be more to come. Okay. 
All right. Also, uh, there's speaking of interesting photos and cool stuff to look at. There's a bunch of new photos that have been added that uh, show the transit of Mercury. Remember, I told you last week that on the 18th that Mercury would transit the Sun. Well, it did. And uh, you know, for those that are interested in those sort of phenomena, go take a look at it. All right. Okay. What else is happening? Uh, you know. In space news, there's not a lot. It's weird. It's like they must all celebrate the Thanksgiving holiday. There's usually lots to report, but uh, let's see what's happening here. On the 20th, today, the Space Tracking and Surveillance System, SSTS-1, is being launched on a Delta rocket. I wonder what that is. Space Tracking and Surveillance System, SSTS-1 and SSTS-2. Somebody Google those. Find out what that is. Um... Cassini, still zipping around Saturn and the moons over there. Nothing fancy there right now, just doing some orbital maneuvers, some trim maneuvers. Uh, Let's see, a few asteroids that are making their approach to Earth. A couple of comets that are zipping in toward the sun. This comet uh, Catalina is going to approach perihelion. A couple of days here on the 24th. Let's see. Asteroid Picasso is going to get pretty close to Earth in a couple of days. And then Cassini's going to do another orbital maneuver on the 26th, but that's it between now and sort of next week. Must be, like I say, people just uh, not staring at the heavens, too busy thinking about eating or something. All right, like I said, tonight's the new moon. Uh, Actually, on Monday at 5.18 p.m. was the actual new moon, 4.18 here in the Midwest. Uh, You won't see much of, uh, of the moon for the next day or two. You will find a pretty bright Uranus out there after nightfall. And uh, Jupiter's now in conjunction with the sun. We won't see that until uh, it zips out in early December. It'll be down below Mercury and Mars, but not for a few weeks now. What else is going on up there? Oh, Wednesday, you'll see the moon couple of days old. It'll be setting in the southwest just a little bit after sunset, maybe an hour or so after sunset. And um, it'll be nice. It'll be a, a very very southern moonset, one of the most uh, southern moonsets of the month. So as always, it's interesting to see what's happening up in the skies and the stars above our heads. It's been really clear lately here in mid-Missouri. I've had just a couple of really wonderful sky-watching evenings over the last couple of weeks. Last night was just beautiful. So let's see, what else? Um, I think we'll hop on the web here and uh, see what Larry's got thrown together here on the news page for us. What do we got? It's about 20 till 2. i got time to do some news here. We haven't done this in a long time. So we'll see what's, uh, what's up here on the website in the, news, uh, in the news section here. First one that catches my eye. Japanese underwater geometric structures precedes pyramids by 5,000 years. Hmm. You know, that's Yanaguni, I'm sure they're talking about. I'm going to open the link right now, but I'm sure they're talking about this find in, uh, in the oceans off the coast of this island in uh, Japan. Not far from, like, uh, I don't know, some like big battlegrounds, actually, in uh, World War II. Anyway, listen to this, man. This is, uh, this is damn interesting. That's the uh, that's the name of the website, by the way, that this is posted on damninteresting.com, all right, with an N or a number of N's. 
Uh, it seems that most every culture has a legend of a great society ripe with the wealth and wisdom which is lost to the sea. To Westerners, these are the stories of Atlantis or Thule. Uh, to many of the peoples of the South Pacific, it is Lemuria or Menahun. The Asians call it Mu, and uh, it was home to the people who could fly and who drank an elixir that would cease aging. Anyway, I'm not going to read the entire article here, but if you uh, just do a search for Yanaguni, you'll find, and you want to look at the pictures, you don't need to read anything. All right? You don't need to read another word. All you have to do is go look at the pictures. All right? And you'll see exactly what's going on. It's just a remarkable megalithic structure that was found underwater. And it's absolutely enormous. It looks like it was built by giants or something because the steps on, on the sides of these big giant pyramids that are underwater are just like, they're gigantic. And uh, this article here doesn't have, well, it's an interesting article, but I've seen some better imagery, some additional imagery that actually has divers that are diving right on this amazing site. And when the divers are right up next to these megalithic stones, it's really cool because then you get a perspective for how big this structure really is. And I'm sure there's a number of them down there. But anyway, it's just amazing what they found off the coast of Japan. We should try to find an expert on Yanaguni. This would be a great help to me if maybe somebody out there who knows a lot about this thing um, knows who might be the best person to talk to with regard uh, to what we know about this archaeological mystery and miracle off the coast of uh, Japan. Anyway, I'm really interested in it. And like I say, all you got to do is look at these pictures. And, you, you, I mean, if you're a reasonable person, you'll have no doubt that something very interesting was going on here. Now, the deal is, the scientists tell us, and, you know, take that with a grain of salt, that the last time that this place was above water was 10,000 years ago. That's why they say that it predated the pyramids. They mean the Giza pyramids um, by 5,000 years. But again, they're assuming that they know how old that whole situation is. Anyway, there's a lot of speculation. But regardless of how old this thing is, it's certainly older than uh, you know than our historical books go back. And unless maybe you go to the Vatican Library, who knows? But anyway... Check out the photos of this place underwater, a place called Yanaguni off the coast of Japan. Outrageous. So great stuff, Larry. Thanks for putting that up there on the web. I'm glad we brought that back into the consciousness because I'd love to do a show on that. I just don't know who to talk to. All right, let me get a wet whistle here. <laughs> All right. What else is in the, in the news here? 21 science books that will prepare you for the 21st century. Oh, God. I don't even know if I want to go there. I'll end up making a whole lot of enemies, probably. You know what I'm going to do? All right, here's what I'll do. I'll give you the t- <laughs> I'll give you my 21. Let's see if I can come up with 21 books, all right, uh, for you to read to prepare you <laughs> uh, for the 21st century. All right, even though we're in the 21st century, they tell us. All right, I got to write 21 books. All right, number one. The Morning of the Magicians. Morning. I'm writing them down so I don't say them twice. Morning of the Magicians. 
by Lewis Powell's and uh, Jacques Bergier. Uh, number two, Food of the Gods, Terence McKenna. Number three, Worlds in Collision, Emmanuel Velikovsky. <laughs> uh, let's see. Number four, The Murder of Christ, Wilhelm Reich. Amazing, if you haven't read it. Five, man. The Biology of Transcendence, Joseph Chilton Pierce. Six, uh, <laughs> let's see. Well, i got to throw another one for Terrence in there. True Hallucinations. There's number six. True Hallucinations. Another just absolutely remarkable book that will change the way, the way you see the world. Let's see. Uh, Maya Cosmogenesis by John Major Jenkins. Eight is Mystery of the Cathedrals by Falconelli. Nine is The Holographic Universe by Michael Talbot. Ten is... Black Elk Speaks by John Nyhart. Read that one twice. Eleven is another book that's called Black Elk, The Sacred Way of a Lakota. This is a, this is a book that was a, a biography of Wallace Black Elk. Um, let's see. Speaking of Hypatia, what an important story. Remembering Hypatia by uh, Brian Trent. Um, DMT, The Spirit Molecule, by Rick Strassman. That's number 13. Number 14 is um, Time in the Technosphere, by Jose Arguez. 15, uh, Prometheus Rising, Robert Anton Wilson. Oh, let's see. 16, how about, um, how about Alchemy and the End of Time, the Hende Cross book by uh, Vincent Bridges and, and our good friend Jay Widener. That's amazing, you know, this whole thing, how this is coming together. Uh, number 17, Jeremy Narby, uh, Cosmic Serpent. DNA and the Origins of Knowledge. 18. Gosh. Getting a little bit more difficult now. <laughs> uh, I better just chat about some of these other ones that I talked about while I, while, I, while I let something come to my to the front of my brain. All right? Morning of the Magicians. Yeah, that's number one for sure. You can read that one and the other ones are all bonuses after that, you know. Um, Food of the Gods. I'm, oh, gosh, Allegro, for sure. Um, the Sacred Mushroom and the Cross by John Allegro, if you can find a copy for less than 50 bucks. That's an amazing book. And a really, really important one. How about uh, Jack Herrer, The Emperor Wears No Clothes, The Emperor's, whatever the name of it is, Jack Herrer's book. That's another really important book. You know, Jack Herrer is a guy that I didn't mention 
uh, in the upcoming guests, but we're going to have him on the program one way or another. I'm not sure exactly how. Um, it's a little bit more difficult because of, uh, for, for personal reasons with Jack. But anyway, he's amazing. Go, go to Jack Herrer, H-E-R-E-R, Jack Herrer, H-E-R-E-R.com, and uh, check out the work that Jack Herrer has done over all these years. Uh, anyway, The Emperor Wears No Clothes, or The Emperor Has No Clothes, is uh, the book that I'll recommend from Jack Herrer. So that's number 19, Emperor. Number 20, oh, man, uh, number 20, oh, well, you have to have the I Ching, the Book of Changes, if you want to see what's happening in the 21st century. So definitely, now, uh, it's, it's more than just a read. It's sort of a technique. But you better get a copy of the I Ching if you don't have one yet. All right? And number 21, the last book for the 21st century... Hmm, well, I guess i got to go back to my roots. i got to go back to my brother. The Archaic Revival. Terrence McKenna. Alright? There's the 21 books that will get you to and through the 21st century. Alright? There you have it. That's my opinion, at least. And I say those seriously. Those are all wonderful books. And I could probably come up with a whole bunch more if I had time and actually thought about it, but I just started thinking about it when I saw... The Science and Technology book, 21 of the books, in the, and I just, after I read the first two, I decided I couldn't continue. So I'm not even going to read them. You want to see them yourself? Go on the web at www.mikehagan.com, and you can, uh, you can go to the news section of the website that Larry so wonderfully puts up there for us. And you can look at the stuff yourself, okay? Speaking of that, hello, Larry, and everybody else that's in the uh, in the chat room over there. Nice to see everyone today. Yeah, Soul, that's another good one. James Arthur, for sure. Uh, there's a whole bunch of them, you know, there's a whole bunch of them. Anyway, let's um, look at the clock here real fast. We've got about ten minutes. You know, I'll say a little bit more about the program. I'm going to say a little bit more about the programs that are coming up. Uh, over the next few weeks. Most of them, we're going to start off right uh, at the 11 o'clock hour like we did tonight with Father Tom. Next week, Louis Greenberg, he's in Florida because a lot of these interviews are on the East Coast and they're older men uh, who you know don't want to be up to 3 in the morning for the most part. But anyway, Professor Louis Greenberg, the guy hung out with Emmanuel Velikovsky, right? He's telling me all kinds of stories off the air. I've talked to him a bunch. He's amazing, right? So anyway... I can't wait to have him on the program, and I think it's going to be a really great show for people out there who, uh, certainly for people who are Velikovsky fans, you're just going to love it. And for people who aren't familiar, uh, this is going to be a great way to introduce the work and the life of Emmanuel Velikovsky to, uh, to people out there who aren't, uh, who aren't familiar with him yet. And yeah, um, Mantuan Bard, I want to say hi to you too. I haven't seen you in a long time. I'm glad you're back, and uh, good to see you. Good to see you back on the on the website, get to know you're in good shape, all right? Okay, everybody. Well, we got eight minutes left. If anybody wants to make a quick phone call, they can do that, 573-443-8255. More than welcome to let me know what you thought of the program tonight. And let's go back and take another look at the news page here. The world's rarest big cat captured. That's nice. That's nice. You want to know why it's so rare? All right. The mere thought of money makes people selfish. (laughs) 
In a series of nine experiments, researchers found that money enhanced people's motivation to achieve their own goals and degraded their behavior toward others. The concept of money, they suggest, makes a person feel more self-sufficient and thus more apt to stand alone. Mm. That's not very good for symbiosis. That's all I have to say. Stephen Hawking's universe. Uh, it's just more whistling past the boneyard. Cat gives birth to puppies. Wow. Cat mates with dog and gives birth to puppies. Now I sound like Art Bell. Uh, <laughs> There's a photo, too. How bizarre. <laughs> Brazilian student Cassia Aparecida de Souza, 18, holds her cat Mimi together with what Cassia claims are Mimi's own offspring born with dog traits last Friday, three months after mating with the neighbor's dog. Now, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. You know, you can do a whole lot with Photoshop these days. You're going to have to do more than that for me, okay? Supernova remnant acts as a particle accelerator. God, talk about peeing into the wind. Instead of, listen to this, I just got to read this just because of the silliness of it. Instead of investing in particle accelerators here on Earth, physicists might consider just blowing up a few stars. New images taken by the Chandra X-ray Observatory show how supernova remnant Cassiopeia A acts as a natural particle accelerator, firing out cosmic rays. As if. Uh, Neanderthal, 99.5% human. Maybe it's the other way around. Human, 99.5% Neanderthal. You ever think of it like that? Okay. Nearby stars come out of hiding. Uh, astronomers have spotted 20 new star systems in our local solar neighborhood, adding to the rapidly growing list of known stellar residents in our galaxy. Yep, lots of stars. Toilet tied to tale of Dead Sea Scrolls. Larry adds his little caveat here. Sorry, just couldn't resist. Well, neither can I. I've got to go see what this one actually says. Figures it's on MSNBC. Let's see what they... Bioarchaeology sheds light on earthly side of scriptural lore. I better not judge this yet. That was what Christ said, right? Do not judge. Okay, I won't. Uh, the photograph shows... A panorama of the Qumran site. Qumran, okay, it's interesting at least. One of the less sanitary aspects of life in Jesus' day has come into play in the, in the debate over who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, how they lived, and how they died. The latest evidence comes from a site that two researchers have identified as the communal latrine for Qumran, the ancient settlement near the caves where the 2,000-year-old scrolls were found. Israeli anthropologists Joe Zias and James Tabor a biblical scholar at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte said the unusual placement of the latrine would be consistent with the theory that Qumran was inhabited by a hardcore Jewish sect known as the Essenes. They even speculate that the latrine's unsanitary conditions may have contributed to the ill health among the sect's members. I don't know, assumptions there for sure, but interesting stuff. Qumran, we should send this to Alan Boyle, the science director or the science editor at MSNBC, the guy that put this story up, and let him know that if he really wants to know what was happening at Qumran, what he should do is grab number 18 on Mike's list of 21 books to get you to and through the 21st century, 
and try to find a copy of it for under 50 bucks. Then he did a good job. It's called The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross by John Marco Allegro. And uh, closes the book on all of this Dead Sea Scrolls business. And, of course, that's why it's been... Now, that's why it costs you 50 bucks to get one now, and it's out of print, and, and, the, and the information has been marginalized and hidden and uh, all that stuff for a long, long time. So, Anyway, not anymore. All right, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. You've been listening to Radio Orbit for the last three hours almost, so thank you, and I hope you come back next week. We'll have Professor Lewis Greenberg, wonderful Professor Lewis Greenberg. We'll talk about Emmanuel Velikovsky and a whole bunch of other stuff with the good doctor. And... Um, Lots of good stuff coming up in the weeks following, and I hope you all listen in. All right? We'll finish things up here with one more song from the cool Chris Coza, and sort of descriptive of the way I'm feeling right now. The song is called Tired Eyes. It's a great program, though, and I'm really pleased that we were able to do it and bring Father, Father Tom to everybody and share the information that he's trying so hard to uh, to bring out and also had a little chance to chat with you guys a little bit. So thanks for everyone for joining me as always on the web www.mikehagan h-a-g-a-n.com and uh, K-O-P-N as always www.kopn.org It's just about 2 a.m. in the morning now on November 21st and it's been a pleasure. We'll talk to you next week. Those are two tired eyes Grains in the sands of time All done, feeling bad There's two of everything Tracks to keep covering All done Go on, erase yourself Cause you belong to the set sun So set be sacralized Set your tired In the gravel road All done Feeling heavy And the sculpture Was a painting Long before it came to The painting A translation of A secret hidden view In the mouth of solitude Statue built a sound Yeah.
Yes, and the highs I found the way. 